hello friends and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host Tim, joined as always by Catherine. My sister, right? And we are here to talk about a very exciting film. A film that fits, unfortunately, within our, our failure piece framework. A film that uh, was not a complete disaster. Uh, it was successful, but not successful enough to be continued. Um, and that film is Joseph Kaczynski's 2010 Tron Legacy. Tron 2, as it was initially stylized, but distanced in later marketing. Uh, so we are here to uh, delve into that film, a film that I can say pretty unabashedly I have a lot of affection for. I think it is in a lot of ways undervalued and underrated. Uh, so I'll come out right away and say that. But I think there are uh, problematic elements of the film. It is not a perfect movie, neither is the original. Uh, but this comes from a really interesting time in Disney Pictures history. Um, you know, this is the pre-Marvel era, right? Like, we're still a few years away from Avengers 1, and uh, Disney was looking for something, and they thought that thing might be Tron, and unfortunately... Quite how I wish it had been. Yeah, this didn't quite work out, but we'll get into it. Uh, so, uh, as we typically do, we're going to start off with a little bit of uh, what you've been watching. Uh, so, Kate, what you've been watching these days? What's... Uh, it's filling your TV box. This week has, has been a struggle um, to get much watched. Uh, I've been um, working on game development stuff because I work for Void Point, which made a game called Ion Fury, and we're gearing up for some cool things to happen in August, but I still made some time to revisit uh, some early seasons of The Simpsons. Um, the Simpsons Fun. is my favorite TV show hands down, um, and I hadn't seen, uh, I guess, the first four seasons in quite some time, so I went back, and I'm in season four now, and uh, I just kind of put those on in the background, and like a warm blanket, they're very comforting. Definitely, and that, that for me is kind of the golden era of The Simpsons. Pretty much everything from seasons four through about nine are, are pretty gold. Um, I think, you know, the, the number of really, really classic episodes kind of decreases as the seasons go on, as, as it's going to. You know, I don't demand that a television show not get out of the park every week, but but those those seasons of The Simpsons offer, at this point, what is classic animated television pretty much across the board. I kind of expand it to uh, seasons really 2 through 14 for me. Um, mm -hmm. Which you have more experience than I do, 100%. Yeah, well, I... At one point, I I watched it four times a day when it was in syndication. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I've could. seen yeah. many, many episodes over and over again. And, of course, I have all of them in various formats now. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I I think some, some classic episodes, or what we might consider classic episodes in the future, um, do, some of those did happen in, like, seasons... Or 10, 12. I can think of some really good ones. Oh, they sure. Love yeah, the I mean, that, like I said, and they, they do. They knock it out of the park at least five to ten times a season. Like, they're they're creating classic episodes. I think there's, you know, just it seems like there became, as the writing teams changed and, you know, elements of the show, you know, had to move forward in some ways, I think, you know, things just get a little bit more 
uh, less consistent for me, but it's still it's a great show. Um, they're actually all on Disney Plus now, uh, which I subscribe to, and uh, we've been kind of chunking through episodes here and there, kind of introducing the kids to it because they don't really have any awareness of The Simpsons as a cultural phenomenon. You know, it's it's too distant from that sort of just pervasive cultural osmosis phase. And, and they're a little um, young to start reaching back into some of that nostalgic stuff on their own, I guess. Mm, yeah, I mean, sure. most people don't think like, I'm going to go watch a TV show from the 80s and 90s when they want to go right, back and, yeah. and be nostalgic about something because, of course, they weren't born yet. Yeah, they didn't. They were not around for that. You know, they, you know my daughter was born in 2009 and... You know why that the Simpsons is definitely still going on, and we've still had eleven seasons of The Simpsons since then. It's never been a present uh, thing in in culture, right? It's not like walking into a store and being slammed in the face with Bart Simpson's T-shirts or yeah. you know Bart Simpson's cups. Like you know, uh, when I was growing up, like it was everywhere. Uh, well, I used to I used know? to go to uh, what was it. Uh, Spencer's Gifts? No. Spencer's was one, and then there was the place that sold all the tapes and in the mall. It was one of those just There was one that stores. changed hands a bunch yeah, of times. It, yeah, it had changed a bunch of names. They used to have a rack of the underachiever and proud of it man shirts, and I used to just stand there and be like, if only I had money. Yeah, I know, right? If only we could have that shirt. It speaks to us. Uh, well, that's awesome. That's that's really cool. Uh, like I said, it's something I definitely have been watching more of. We we had gotten to uh, Steven Universe a little bit, which mm -hmm. I know has been around forever, but we never really engaged with. You know, it, it kind of came out at a time when we weren't watching a lot of television. Period. My kids were young, and uh, so I kind of let it slide on by. As I did a lot of those, like for you know, big early Cartoon Network original successes, I just never really engaged. Adventure Time, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, so we kind of started that, uh, just kind of watching an episode after dinner and surprisingly good, like, a, especially for an 11 minute cartoon network, uh, show, they've got some really complex writing beats that they're trying to hit every episode, which I think is a, a is really cool. You know, they've kind of got an ABC story set up where, you know, you have your A story of the episode, you have your B story of like Steven's past and who is his, uh, friends are and then you'll have like this large-scale sea story that's slowly being unraveled as as the season goes on like a season-long arc which for an 11 minute show that's a lot to pack in and the episodes always feel very full right which isn't something i can necessarily say about adventure time adventure time a lot of the episodes are just one note kind of like there's a single joke at the heart of this 11 minute episode and we're just going to run that out until you can't stand it anymore yeah Whereas this feels very full, very articulated, um, very well put together. So kids are super into it. Uh, my wife is really enjoying it. So we're, we're probably going to stick with that for a while and see where it goes. But Nice. Uh, I know it's it's beloved. Like, I'm certainly behind the times. Most people who listen, you know, would listen to this would be like, well, duh. <laughs> but I'm like, <laughs> for me, I'm looking at it going like, wow, this is really solid. But the main thing uh, this weekend... Uh, my wife and I decided we were just going to kind of power through Umbrella Academy season two and uh, was not disappointed. Absolutely fantastic season of television, uh, 10 very solid episodes, excellent writing, really good character work. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, needle drops with Twilight last week and just, you know, 
usage of music and, and how it can really elevate scenes. Um, Umbrella Academy has five or six of those per episode. <laughs> like it's remarkable, uh, the music licensing that they would have had to do for that show. Uh, this season is set in the 1960s. Uh, there's some time travel weirdness after the, the first season. And so they get dropped in the 1960s into uh, Dallas. And there is a tremendous amount of period accurate music. But then there are some really great modern covers that they throw in there as well. There's a really good cover of Bad Guy. Um, and, and just it's it's fantastic. Like the, the music in the show is great uh, and really, really well done. Um, but uh, it, was, it was awesome. Like I, I don't want to say too much about it because it is still very fresh, very new. People might have had a chance to engage with it yet, but um, completely satisfied by it. I'm, I'm still kind of writing that emotional and narrative high when you see everything kind of come together in a satisfying way at a conclusion, right? You know, like you feel emotionally satisfied for the characters and the arcs that they've taken, but you also feel narratively satisfied that the story's progressed in a satisfying way. And, uh, it's just been awesome. It was it was really fun to just kind of pile through it in a couple of days. I love um, doing that. It's fun, man. I, I I don't always love the binge philosophy. I don't know if it is the de facto way to consume long form media. You know, I don't know if that's really the best way to do it. But sometimes it is great to not have to wait, you know, because I'll be honest, if I had to, you know, if I'd just been able to watch the first episode and I knew I was going to have to wait 10 weeks to get to the last one, I'd just be pissed. I'd just be <laughs> like, damn it, let me have this. And, uh, and it's really good. I, I just, uh, I, I always enjoyed the comic. Uh, I remember we were, we were living, uh, we were living in an apartment at the time. So I was very careful about what kind of comics <laughs> I bought just for space concerns. You know, I just didn't have room to just pile comic books everywhere. Not like I do now. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I can. I have a stack of comics sitting next to me right now. Um, but uh, I remember being especially drawn to uh, Umbrella Academy. Not because of Gerard Way. Like, I was not a My Chemical Romance guy that was like, anything that these guys do, I have to have. It was mostly Gabriel Ba's artwork uh, that fascinated me because I, I love that dude's style. It's his is a bit more cartoonish than mine, but I have a very, you know, my own artwork is, is very loose. You know, I do a lot, just very basic shapes, and then I fill in with pen and ink. And, and his, his style is very similar, and I've always loved it. Like, it's just, it's, it's been fantastic from the moment I, I, you know, sort of found his stuff. And, and so I was always drawn to it for that reason. And I don't have the whole series, uh, you know, most of the first run, I guess, and then I got it in trade. But... Uh, just a great story. I think the thing I like about it the most, because it's a comic book story, we're inundated with comic book stories now. We've talked about them on here a bunch already. Um, one of the things that most of our comic book adaptations have lost, and, and Marvel and DC are both guilty of this, is losing some of the inherent weirdness of comics. Right? Like, intentionally pushing that stuff to the, the far reaches of the film versions of those things. And I'm sorry, comic books at their heart, especially if you read them, like the actual comics are very weird. Yeah. Right? Like the, the Chris Claremont the Chris Claremont run on X-Men isn't is is out of this world. 
um, the original Infinity Gauntlet run out of this world. Like the original Infinity Gauntlet story wraps up with Nebula turning into a zombie after her dad sucks all the life <laughs> out of her and then ripping the, the, the gauntlet off of him, right? Like that's how the Infinity Saga ends in the comics, I right? It's not this epic... There's not this epic showdown where, where, you know, all these characters get together and fight. And that's fine. I, I like both versions. But I love that Umbrella Academy, because Umbrella Academy is an inherently out there comic. I mean, there is a character called Space Boy, who is a half man, <laughs> half monkey, who lived on the moon. That is a main character in the story, right? <laughs> like, it's it's inherently strange, and they just lean into it in the most refreshing way. They're nice. not trying to cover it up. They're not trying to slide by it and be like, no, 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 no. This is everything's fine, right? Yes, there's a guy who's really strong and he can lift things a bunch of the walls. It's fine. He's cool, right? It's none of that. It's like, no, he's a big ape man, like, and people are freaked out by that, and he's freaked out by that. Right. Like he didn't want to be that, but that's what he is. And it's it just leans into all those elements in really cool ways. And they don't undermine it or don't feel the need to constantly undermine it by having that one character who's poking fun, deflating the balloon. That's how Marvel chooses to do it. Right. Like, you know, the original X-Men is the perfect example. You know, they're in their black tights flying to the Statue of Liberty to fight Magneto on the, the torch. Right. And. Which was and, great. Uh, it's great. No, I love it. But Wolverine's like, hey, could we wear these different costumes? And then Cyber, and then Psycho was like, what did you prefer, you yellow, yellow spandex? spandex. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, so that's like the deflation of the balloon. Like, hey, you dumb comic nerds, what do you want to see? The yellow spandex and the black leather battle? Actually, you know? yes. Yeah. and <laughs> I wanted to see that. You know, and then the the cut scene from the Wolverine where he opens up the case from, you know, the Japanese guy that he's assisted and inside is the yellow and black costume that got cut from the movie. And then everybody was like, what? It's like, yes, we do want to see those things. We do want to see Wolverine in that outfit because that's what comic books are. They're a little bit goofy. Right. And that's fine. And Umbrella Academy just runs straight towards it. There's plenty of serious drama. Don't get me wrong, but they they are not sacrificing any of that unique world to make it more palatable for anybody and i love that it's just awesome um and and really solid writing like i cannot say enough about the writing team i think it they had a different person write every episode say for like the last two they had a couple of teams put them together of this season and Despite that, they, it was just incredibly tight. You know, it wasn't, uh, it was just a really, really, you know, unified vision and, and very satisfying. So nice. I can't speak enough about that. And then we, we started watching Ozark. Uh, we're not super far into it, but we finally um, did. That's um, the Jason Bateman. The Jason Bateman in I, Lake of the Ozarks. You know, yeah. it, I was on board until they got to Missouri, and then I was like, that's not Missouri. <laughs> yeah, no, it is definitely not, and that is not the Lake of the Ozarks. Uh, you know, they've got some drone footage of Lake of the Ozarks, but they are not in Lake of the Ozarks. Um, As a Missourian, I found that very difficult to believe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was our big, big fear as well, is that once they got to Missouri and started simulating Missouri life, which unfortunately we are very familiar with acute nowhere <laughs> we would uh, we would be turned off and it, it it was a rocky little like 
Uh, but it's it's sort of moved on, and and you know the the pressing concerns of the show. I mean, it really feels like somebody watched Breaking Bad and said, "I let's do that I, in Missouri." <laughs> I want to focus on the guy who gets rid of the money, but in like a rural area with meth. Like that really just seems kind of like where they were headed. Um, and and that's fine. Yeah, it's it's a decent premise for a show because honestly, the the more technical components of you know the drug trade, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Are are for me some of the more interesting things, right? Not not the the salaciousness of it, or the uh, you know the you know the pearl clutching drugs, you know, not that part. Wow. It's really the like, how do you actually make this work, given that all of the mechanisms that you're using to have your business, quote unquote, are illegal. And so, like, it was the hook for Breaking Bad for me in a lot of ways. Um, and what kind of kept me going through parts of that show that I didn't really enjoy. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. Like I, I'm enjoying it. I think it's pretty good. And the family drama of it is, is pretty solid as well, but I like Jason uh, Bateman a lot. Same. And I like same. him as a serious actor a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. He, he is consistently surprising. Uh, I also, this was a while back, not my current viewing of anything, but uh, the HBO show that he did, uh, of the Stephen King adaptation, The Outsider, was surprisingly good. Uh, and he executive produced and directed a bunch of that and, and was in it for, for a few episodes. But uh, that is also great, uh, really good. I mean, it, you know, the Stephen King adaptations, it, at least historically speaking, it either is dead on, you got it, or this is a nightmare. You know, like there doesn't seem to be much middle ground with Stephen King and, and the outsider was definitely one that I was, I was more happy with than I was disappointed. And that was, that was cool. Cause I really enjoyed that book. I read that one and, and was, was thoroughly surprised by it. Yes. Uh, but in any case, um, so that's kind of where we're at, but obviously our focus today is on Tron. Uh, so before we get into the, the failure of this particular film, we can probably, and we may have an episode on this at some point in the future, too, because unfortunately the original Tron also fits our criteria because it was a disastrous failure in 1982 for it Disney. Um, so for those not in the know, Tron is a 1982 film that at its core shares a lot of story similarities with the one we're about to talk about, but ultimately is about a man, a computer video game designer, which in 1982 was a very new thing. Uh, the personal computer was a very new thing. Uh, who winds up getting pulled into the world of the computer, into the digital world, goes on an incredible adventure to recover information that will prove that he was actually the designer of some of his company's most famous games, where he had been shut out of the company and you know, prevented from you know, reaping the benefits of designing these successful video games by a villain named John Dillinger, played with a plum by Michael Warner. Um, but he goes on this adventure. Oh, David he's wonderful. Warner is, is just yeah awesome. I mean, he is kind of one of those like iconic 1980s bad guys because he did he played a bunch of bad guy characters in the 1980s, and uh, you know he's one of those dudes. If you don't know the name, if you saw his face, you'd be like, oh yeah. It's that bad guy. That, that guy, yeah. Uh, but so he goes into the computer to recover a piece of information. He gets sucked in uh, a 
originally it was uh, supposed to kill him or, or harm him, but he gets pulled into the computer, um, goes on an adventure, meets other computer programs that are, are visualized as human beings, kind of. Uh, most notably, a security program designed by a friend of his named Tron, who was supposed to protect the system, and uh, eventually destroys the MCP, the Master Control Program, this uh, piece of software created by the guy who locked him out and stole his fame for designing the games uh, in order to control this massive computer system at the company. And uh, it's, a, it's really a very small story, right? There's no world-ending stakes. Uh, all of the stakes take place inside the digital world of the computer. Um, it was a big swing for Disney in 1982, which, you know, this is smack dab in the middle of what are now referred to as the dark times for <laughs> Disney. Um, they had not had an animated hit in years um, and, and, and wouldn't for another five, almost six years. Yeah, because um, the project they were working on was the Black Cauldron. That's it right. It was and under another title at the time, but they had right. been working on that. For I would like say that was years. pitched in the 70s, and mm-hmm. they didn't actually make it happen until 85. Yeah, and Katzenberg was in control at that point. He hated the project. Uh, he thought it was too dark. And, and so he intentionally tried to stop it a bunch of times. So, and, and so Disney was releasing a bunch of live action movies that had failed to really do anything significant. Um, somehow, Steven Lisberger, like a dude, <laughs> Some uh, pitched, guy. He, he had no bona fides in the film industry before this. I think he had worked on a couple of small projects, but had not really done anything super successful. He pitched Disney on this story about a guy going inside a computer and and seemingly sold them more on what he was planning to do with it visually, right? That it was going to be this really striking visual experience that would incorporate what now is generally recognized as the first significant use of 3D computer-rendered graphics in a film. Um, and, and it was pioneering work, right? Uh, there's a really good episode on, on Disney+. Plus. They've got this series that looks at uh, famous memorabilia and props from films. And they have a whole episode on Tron. And they, you know, if you're looking, you know, I, I've watched a lot of stuff about how they, they did the special effects in the original Tron. But they've got a great episode on Disney+, Plus that breaks down, you know, sort of how the suits worked and how they filmed it. And uh, ultimately, it was a lot of work, right? They shot out all of the computer stuff in black and white. Everybody wore um, suits that had hand-painted pla- hand black lines. They would mat those out and then, then basically paint these lights onto them that made it look like circuitry. The effect and, and was it, awesome. <laughs> yeah, at the time, it, you know, again, if you're talking about liking movies because you've never seen anything like that, like it looked incredible. And so it, it was really visually interesting, but the story was... So so, I mean, it's a classic adventure story. It's it's very Star Warsy, which is another reason probably why this was greenlit because they were hoping to get the nerds. Um, you know, I mean, I can see that boardroom conversation like, well, "What are you going to do, Michael Eisner? How are we going to get the nerds?" And then everybody's like, "Oh, Tron." Uh, but so the movie comes out. It's a huge financial disaster. Uh, it was extre- incredibly expensive to make, not just because of the computer graphics, but they actually did do. Tremendous amount of pre-production work. They did uh, a ton of post-production work to get the visuals looking the way they wanted. Uh, it was a huge undertaking. They spent a lot of money on it. They recouped nothing of it. So, tremendous disaster, but like 
some of those special projects, it found a life, especially on VHS. Uh, it, it came out sort of right on the cusp of VHS being widely adopted um, and, and became a sort of almost instantaneous cult classic, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of in the same space now as The Last Starfighter, um, Daryl, if he <laughs> remembers that one, uh, Never Ending Story, you know, these, these big fantasy swings that just didn't go anywhere in the 1980s. This one and hit more of a computer wore tennis shoes vibe as yeah, far as for marketing, sure. which was sad. It's sad. <laughs> but what it gets right, and, and I've, I've watched the original Tron fairly recently, and the, th the reason why I think it persists is because somehow, and, and I don't know how Steven Lisberger did this, because from what I understand, he's not a computer engineer. He, he, he was around computers. He knew people that worked on computers. He had some consultants, some friends that he would ask questions about, you know, sort of how does this work with a computer? Or what is this like? But the world of the computer that he created, of what programs might be like, of how you would travel on energy, right? Like all of these things that you would think now you would watch it and because we have far more understanding of how computers work today on average, like your average person is not blindsided by the idea of a computer, a digital world, right? In 1982, they were a hundred percent, had way more explaining to do than you would have to do now. But the world that he built about how the computer in, you know, the, the world inside the computer operated is surprisingly spot on, even now, right? Like, you know, the terminology, uh, you know, input-output systems, security programs, like, it, it all holds together. Like, even with what we know about advanced computing and home and personal computing today, it still fits. And it's remarkable because that movie should be dated as hell. Like, you should watch that and then the computer stuff makes no sense now but it absolutely works. It was also really great for, for me, and I, and I know partially for you, because we didn't have a computer. We actually didn't have one for the entire time you lived at home. Nope. Um, my first computer after I got married. Yeah, I and I got my first computer from mom's cousin Lloyd, who was throwing it away. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um, so it was, it was literal trash. Um, it was kind of magical, the way that they they almost mythologized the computer world, and to mm -hmm. someone who didn't have a computer and and was not going to get a computer for a very long time, that was that was kind of incredible. And I wonder if that was some of the problems that maybe older like adults critics might have had when they watched the film that it it just mm. didn't capture a lot of magic. You know that Disney magic. Right, um, which Disney was desperate to try and coalesce together at this point in history. And it exactly. Um, I think it is age group, right? I think the group that would been would have been most fascinated and willing to engage with Tron was probably just a bit too young to either be taken to it or to, to necessarily engage with it fully. You know, probably yeah. that, that 10 to 15-year-old who was coming up in the age of, of, you know, Bill Gates founding Microsoft and you know, Steve Jobs building Apple and, and, you know, sort of the onrush of that. I mean, I think there was a, a general 
excitement about technology and, and computing in general, but that didn't translate to box office. And, and that's ultimately all Disney is going to care about. Um, so Tron dies on the vine, becomes that sort of cult success, people loving it, you know, all throughout the 80s and 90s. And basically we get to, to mid-2000s, right? Disney is riding high on the blockbuster franchise machine. And they've got Pirates of the Caribbean, right? It's huge, doing massive numbers, came out of nowhere. No one was expecting it to be a thing. Becomes a thing, starts making Buku Bank. But it's coming to an end, right? Pirates of the Caribbean 3 is, is wrapping up. Gore Verbinski's walking away. I don't want to do this anymore. Johnny Depp is demanding more money, I imagine. And, and they're looking to expand their franchise options. The, the Marvel-Disney deal is new at this point, right? So this would have been like 2007, 2008. So Iron Man is just coming out as Tron is entering into development. So Disney doesn't have a huge blockbuster franchise to hinge its quarterly reports on. So they're looking for, what do we got, right? So somebody, probably somebody that saw Tron back in the 1980s and is now a corporate executive says, hey, a Tron, right? And again, this is all supposition on my part, but it's kind of easy to put these together. Yeah. And, and they say, we need a franchise. We need something we can turn into big bucks, and they pull on Tron. And that's gonna that brings us to, to Tron Legacy and and the film that because uh, I remember when this teaser hit, man. This was like 2008, I think. It was Comic-Con. And they dropped a teaser of a light cycle battle. And it was two dudes on light cycles battling back and forth. One of them was kind of greenish blue, the other one was orange. And it was awesome. It looked incredible. And then at the end. Face mask, face mask goes up on the bad guy, and it's Jeff Bridges. People lose their minds. Like I, re I remember because the first time I saw it, it was a pirated version that a dude had like recorded on a cheap Nokia camera phone, and then uploaded to the internet. And I watched it before it disappeared, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Like the moment that his face appeared, everybody went nuts, <laughs> and so like I'm immediately on board. Right. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is cool. I'm in for this. And then it kind of goes away. Like no other news for a long time. So they're developing, developing, developing. And uh, Tron Legacy ultimately gets released in uh, December of 2010. It's December release, probably a sign that Disney didn't have the summer blockbuster feels for it. But uh, hard to know. Um, and, and it doesn't really go anywhere either. Right, so I guess that, that really brings us to the failure. Um, Tron Legacy made money, right? That's the thing we have to say. It was, had, it was budgeted at about $170 million, uh, by all accounts, which is a lot in 2010. That's, that's big swing money, right? They're, they're putting a lot behind this project. Pulled in about $400 million at the worldwide box office. Now, if you know, you know anything about budgeting in Hollywood... Basically, double your budget is considered your almost break-even point uh, because whatever you spent on production, you're going to spend roughly that much on marketing. Uh, at least that's the typical breakdown, right? So, which is why something like Justice League, which reportedly cost like three hundred million, needed to hit a you know seven hundred and fifty plus million to even 
break even for the studio, right? right? Like right. that's where their investment point was like, okay, now we're making money. No, it made that, but not much more than that. And so Tron is in that scenario, right? It made about 400 million back in 2010. People cared less about the worldwide box office. It was all U.S. box office that mattered, and it really barely made over 100 million in the U.S. box office. Um, so it was it was not enough of a success for Disney to continue pursuing it as a franchise, even though the film is definitely set up to be that, which is super unfortunate. So it it made money, not enough money. Also, not critically beloved. Right, so if we look at our, our Rotten Tomatoes score, if we get into the the specific failure, it's sitting at a fifty one percent. Right, so again, dead middle of the road, very much just meh. It's just <laughs> right, weird. that is That's the, so weird. the critical reaction. I know, and there are things about this I feel like that is un tremendously unfair to the film. Um, but I think one, we're running up against that standard critical reaction to it, the blockbuster in general. Right, like the to be a satisfying blockbuster at the commercial and critical level, you have to hit a lot of very specific notes, or at least seemingly so. Marvel has figured out how to hit those notes these days, and so typically the critical response for these films, those films will be high as well. But we also have a little bit, I think, um, there was a I remember back when the Star Wars prequels were coming out, and I think it was Ebert, it was probably Ebert, who said, I don't know why I'm even reviewing this, no one cares. <laughs> The people who are going to go see this movie oh are going to go see it. Uh, like, they're going to go see it. What difference does it make, right? It's a Star Wars movie. And and I think that what we've really got now are critics that basically treat this that way, but just don't say so. It's like, so I'm going to give it a good review because, quite frankly, the people who are going to go see it are going to go see it anyway. I'm going to have zero impact on the success or failure of this film based upon the words that I'm currently writing. So... And that's, my hands in the that air. is honestly criticism in theory at its core. Anytime you engage in those conversations, understand no one else cares. <laughs> yeah. Like if you think other people are making those decisions based on your words, you're probably wrong. Uh, if anything, reviews are, are just confirmation for your personal feelings. Like you're just looking for somebody else to think the same way you do, which is why most critics that we're drawn to are people who ultimately think the same way we do about our project, about projects. But so the, the critical reaction is, is mixed to negative, mixed to positive, um, but definitely middle of the road, right? Nobody's loving this thing, but nobody's really hating it either. Uh, so some, some simple phrases that I pulled. The Metacritic score is pretty much dead on, but it's 49 uh, a Metacritic score. So again, middle of the road. Uh, so we've got Bruce uh, Dionis from The New Yorker. Uh, Disney may be looking for a merchandising bonanza with this long gestating sequel to the groundbreaking 1982 film, but someone in the corporate offices forgot to add any human interest to its action-heavy script. Huh. So um, <laughs> this one acknowledges that the, the 1982 film was groundbreaking, which I find surprising that they're looking at that film and saying, oh, that was great, or that was groundbreaking, but this... Well, that's not what you said blah, blah, in the blah, 80s. Blah. Yeah, in 1982, that ain't what people were saying, buddy. That was not the tune that was being expressed, so that's a little weird. Uh, so we actually have somebody from our sort of hometown paper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Joe Williams. Uh, it's a triumph of streamlined design, but Tron Legacy never enters the fourth dimension where it's worth a plugged nickel to humans. Hmm. Uh, some mixed metaphors going on there, but okay. So again, one of the common themes, if we can pull it out, is that a lot of people felt that this movie was very, very beautiful, but cold, right? That there's nothing emotional 
happening here, that it's just gloss. I, I am criticism going... that came up about David Fincher last week. Very, very true. Uh, and this will not be the last time that I talk about David Fincher in relationship to Tron Legacy, which he would probably find infuriating, but... <laughs> We'll get there. Um, uh, all right. So uh, Lisa Kennedy from the Denver Post. Tron Legacy proves once again that movies can be incubators for exciting technological and FX advances while leaving our need for narrative unsatisfied. All right. So again, hmm. same basic complaint. Um, <laughs> I, I liked this one. I, I, I don't agree with it. But uh, was it really necessary to wait 28 years for a sequel that wasn't worth attempting in the first place? Oh, Boom. That's gotcha. <laughs> uh, and that's from the Christian Science Monitor. Where's the Christian love there, Christian Science Monitor? <laughs> um, is that what Jesus thinks? Uh, I know the Christian Science Monitor has very little to do with that. But anyway. Uh, and then finally, uh, Tom Merstad from the Dallas Morning News. The This updated story sinks under the weight of its own mystical mumbo jumbo and pseudoscience gobbledygook, which I have a direct response to because I know exactly what he's talking about uh, because this film unlike many modern sci-fi films we've talked already about things like Sunshine and Alex Garland and what we might call big idea science fiction where they're you know, dealing with these very big concepts and how we might realistically handle them Tron tries to do that too um, there is a very large sequence in the middle of this where basically uh, Kevin Flynn the Jeff Bridges character that's moved forward from the original Tron sort of explains the universe of the computer and what he discovered inside of it. And a lot of people when this came out were like, that is just garbage. And it's not actually, uh, it, it is science fiction. Absolutely. But it is actually surprisingly well thought out in terms of, of what it was. So we'll talk about that too, but I, that's why I pulled that quote because it directly addresses a, really common complaint i remember from the times people like oh man that doesn't make sense it's stupid absolutely does if you know anything about mathematics uh, but anyway so the common problems called from from my reading uh it is soulless right this movie has no heart <laughs> driving it um it's beautiful but cold right there's no no warmth to it it's it's very gorgeous very beautiful looking but there's no sort of life in the bones uh, it is a generic adventure plot, which we'll probably, we're definitely going to talk about that because this plot is very straightforward, right? There is not a tremendous amount of, you know, there's no surprising twists save for one, which a lot of people probably didn't care that much about, but, um, you know, it, it is, it is a adventure story of the classic variety, right? It's trying to ground a very strange world in a very typical story. And it's self-referential. It's even self-referential about it. I mean, there's a character in it that references the works of Jules Verne, right? Like, they're not really hiding or trying to cover up the fact that this is sort of a classic adventure story. But in any case, generic adventure plot. Uh, some people called it a retread of the original, which it does cover some of the same ground, 100%. Uh, we can't really deny that. And then some people said that it was kind of a one-note experience, right? Not, not a lot of complexity to the film. So um, let's dive in and address some of those concerns and more. But, uh, you know, what is your reaction to, to some of those statements? What do you think? Well, it's a big pile of crap. 
Um, that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, a that was, that's exceptionally yeah. harsh, um, mm. for a, a movie that I don't think hurt anyone with its, its intent or its presence. Oh no, no. Um, Jeff Bridges came to people's houses and beat their children in their sleep. Like, I, like, that's, I, like, that's what well, happened. For well, sure. where, where does the hate begin with this film? I don't understand it. Um, um, I think it's, it's a byproduct that. I mean, we are now fully enmeshed in the world that we can we can generally call the you know the, the film industry according to Disney. Like we're there now, you know, seventy percent of the film industry now is is owned or part owned by Disney in some significant way, and that was really just starting at this time, right? Yeah. Like they were just kicking in, so there was a lot of we know likey Disney at this point, um, and and I think there's a bit of that here. Um, and I also think maybe it was Disney's positioning of this as, as sort of a, you know, we're bringing back this beloved property. And so maybe people were, you know, their expectations were somewhat inflated, even though the original Tron had not been this, you know, it was now looked upon as groundbreaking, but was not beloved at the time at all. And really not even that much in the intervening years. So I think maybe it's a bit of that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, the, the the critical reception, there were people, there were positive reviews too. Like there were people that were like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call them glowing, but there were people who were like, you know, this film works. It's it's doing what it's intended to do, that kind of thing. Um, well, let's jump into the opening because that's also going to hit one of the things that this film was maligned for. Uh, a thing that has now become, uh, that has now become uh, commonplace, especially in Disney films. But um the film opens, and I'm going to be honest. I've watched a lot of Disney stuff. I have children, so Disney is a huge part of our lives. Probably would be even if I didn't, because I like Disney stuff. I'm, I'm not a, a Disney geek. hater. I am. Yeah, I love all things Disney except for well, I love all things animated Disney and Disney parks. I'm huge. Yes, I mean, I again, I'm. I'm it's going to be hard for me to position myself as a person who hates Disney. I, I don't, and I never have. I, it's too much a part of of my life for the entirety of my existence for me to be like, oh, Disney, Disney's the evil empire, right? It's like, yes, they are, but... Well, I mean, I neither of like us them. have ever known a world where there was no such thing as Disney. No. I mean, our parents don't even know what that world looks yeah. like, right? I mean, we're, we're 70, 80 years deep into the, the Disney revolution at this point. I think it's over. We lost. Sorry. Um, so the film opens um, with a modified... Disney opening, which I love movies that do this. I absolutely I love them. Uh, so this one opens with, uh, you know, the, the castle, you know, Cinderella's castle, but it is Tronified and it is on the grid and it looks amazing. And it immediately kicks off the visual tenor of the film. Uh, and then we, we cut to, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about frequently, and, and, but we can broach now is that the soundtrack for this film is incredible. If you have never heard it, go and listen mm -hmm. to it right now i'd be surprised if you haven't heard pieces of it at the very least because it is done by daft punk and it is some of the best work that daft punk has ever done in my opinion and that's saying something because i love daft punk and i think they are one of the most important bands of the last you know 25 years easily uh but somebody somebody at disney either you know joseph kaczynski or some really really smart music acquisitions person said, hey, you know, you know who might like to do a good, you know, like electronic soundtrack for an electronic movie? Daft Punk. 
because one of the things about Tron that people malign now, I was watching a, a Red Letter Media video about Tron and Tron Legacy a couple of uh, weeks ago, revisiting that, knowing we'd probably talk about this again. And uh, they talked about how cheesy the soundtrack for the original Tron was. You know, I was like, oh, it just sounds goofy and stupid. But what people maybe don't know is that that soundtrack was created by Wendy Carlos um, or, or Wendy Williams. I can't remember her last name. Um, who was at the time one of the pioneers of synthesized music. Mm. Um Program synthesizers, created synthesizers, because synthesizers in 1982 and, and before that even were extremely rare. They were finally popularized by none other than Peter Gabriel in the 1980s. Um, but, but synthesized music of any kind was incredibly difficult. It required a tremendous amount of equipment, a tremendous amount of technical knowledge to create. Uh, and the soundtrack for that by, I think it was Wendy Carlos Williams, um, was a, a seminal and watershed moment in synthesized music and soundtracks. Um, so while to our modern ears it sounds sort of chintzy and a little bit hokey, at the time it was, it was another revolutionary piece of that film. Um, before that, uh, I believe the, the album that had gotten uh, her attention was called Switched On Bach, where uh, she basically redid most of Bach's major uh, concertos and pieces in digital form. And it had been a sort of little mini sensation in the world of classical music because no one thought that you could replicate that kind of complex music digitally. And, and she did it. So um, perhaps it was that, that somebody at, at Disney said, we need other digital and electronic music pioneers to create the soundtrack for this. And they went to Daft Punk, which I think is a great idea. But so the, the movie kicks in, uh, the soundtrack starts immediately and we get this awesome voiceover by Jeff Bridges, which I heard first on the soundtrack because the soundtrack came out before the movie did. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it's this great voiceover of Jeff Bridges talking about the grid. And we, you know, we get a single line moving across like you would see on an oscilloscope, basically, you know, something that in early computer days you use to test you know, transmission of data. And then the lines flare out. They begin to form what originally initially looks like some kind of uh, circuit board, right? He's talking about computers, how he imagined that the world inside the computer was like ours and that they would travel, you know, what if data traveled on freeways and what if programs were like computers? And then it forms a city street seamlessly yeah. right and and it's beautiful and then we get the tron logo sideways mirroring the introduction of the tron logo in the original film it spins out and then quite frankly we get one of many david fincher shots in this movie as we we because we're just single shot at this point we're digitally seamed together just like fincher loves to do we shoot out across the water in some sort of Bay Area city. It's supposed to be San Francisco, but whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's just a big city. You know, because in the original, there were bunches of shots that sort of made um, 
the city look like the computerscape, right? Like very famously, the last yeah. scene is this this long exposure that shows cars traveling on freeways and their lights sort of stretching together and blending together. And it's supposed to look very much like the world that Jeff Bridges exited when he left the computer and sort of saying like, hey, our world isn't that different. And so really we open with that same idea and push uh, you know, into the real world and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful and it's lit and it establishes the color palette of the computer world. We go out across the bay, we zoom seamlessly into a beautiful beachside home and into the bedroom of our, our soon-to-be hero, Kevin Flynn, uh, or, or Sam Flynn in this case, and his father is visiting, who is Kevin Flynn, the hero of the original film. And they're having a conversation um, and basically... You know, this is the kind of exposition scene, I don't know about you, but this is the kind that I really love because they're basically telling us the story of the first movie, if you haven't seen it, because they know, yeah. probably haven't. It's been a while, maybe it's even been if a you bit. have. <laughs> and they're telling us the story of the first film of how he, you know, went into the computer, he had to make allies and friends, setting up a whole bunch of the conflicts of the film in a very simple way conversation between dad and son they even built action figures yep because in this universe the the world of tron the the game the video game is is a massive success and so there's merchandise posters the kid has you know freaking tron bed sheets right that are obviously meant version of you <laughs> on my shelf <laughs> um and, and they're having a conversation and then kevin flynn leaves and and is is going to work or doing something and I love how this film is shot because Jeff Bridges is now in his late 60s, early 70s. But this is supposed to be set in 1989 when uh, Kevin Flynn would have been you know, late 30s. And so here we get uh, a really excellently put together shot, which is basically like hiding his face. Right. We see it a little bit in profile and, and you know, it's still Jeff Bridges' voice and the voiceover. But then, right as the scene ends, yeah, that they reveal... scratch moment. <laughs> right, because one of the things... I, I didn't mention it in any of the reviews that I pulled. But one of the things that this film was maligned for was... And I, I believe this is the first instance of this, uh, of what we now call digital de-aging. Right. Uh, it is a staple of the Marvel Universe. We've had Michael Douglas digitally de-aged, Michelle Pfeiffer digitally de-aged. Um, you know, the list goes on and on uh, as this technology has continued to become robust. Obviously, in the Star Wars films, we've had young Princess Leia. We've had Grand Moff Tarkin. You know, we've had all of these digital facial replacements over a live actor. And this is... One of the first a instances. Digital Jeff Bridges. Digital Jeff Bridges. Um, and it looks not, really good. It I, does look good. Um, it it's, doesn't it's the, look perfect. It does not. Um, it's it's mostly the mouth movements are off because they are pulling their motion capture from old Jeff Bridges' mouth. Yeah. And old Jeff Bridges' mouth does not move like young Jeff Bridges' mouth. Um and, and so there's a bit of, of disconnect there. And, you know, we're running into, you know, the commonly referred to term as the uncanny valley, right? Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't look real enough for us to say that it's fine. And it doesn't look bad enough for us to accept it as fake. And so we're left in this bewildered state. I would now, have liked it if they had left him in the dark and we had not seen his face at that moment. Right, because I'm, 
for me, once we're in the computer, it's easier to buy. Right. And it's established as being yeah. clue. Right. Um, it, it's much easier to buy the digital de-aging. Uh, and I will say that, you know, we, we eventually get a digitally de-aged uh, Bruce Boxleitner, who plays Alan Bradley, who is the template for Tron. And that and one looks, looks substantially better. He looks fantastic. But I think it's because we didn't have an outside in the real world reference point. You know? Also, um, and he I'm, has less to I'm do. Gonna, like I'm going to throw it out there. Jeff Bridges has a bit more Hollywood clout than Bruce Boxleitner. And oh, I think sure. perhaps mm-hmm. people have a vision of Jeff Bridges as, you know, the dude in their, mm-hmm. their minds. And then to see something that was so different and taking us to, to an era of Jeff Bridges acting career that we had not seen in a long time. Right. That because that's, that's the other thing is that Jeff Bridges' face at that age is incredibly well known. Yeah. Like we know what Jeff Bridges looked like in the 1980s. If you are even a cursory, you know, follower of film, you've seen his face. Um, and and it we've just, watched not him age over decades. Yeah, I mean, we've very much we've so. watched mm-hmm. his career, you know, progress. Bruce Boxleitner has a much smaller career. Granted, I'm a huge fan. Oh um, yeah, Babylon. I just, Tron and then Babylon I, Five. <laughs> I just bought Babylon Five on on a, a digital service because they had it on Amazon and they took it off. Uh, which broke my little heart because I was like in season three, and uh, I just bought it. I just I just plunked down thirty bucks on sale to grab the whole series so I can watch it again. And uh, yeah, Bruce Boxleitner is amazing. Like he's incredible. Uh, um, in that I just series I love, and many other things. I I loved seeing him in this movie. I, I even before we get to his role in the film, I'm just putting it out there. I loved that he came back to play. Yeah. And he was so um, jazzed to do it, man. Like yeah. he's, he's just having a great time, and you can tell. But so this, this digital de-aging process, which is an essential component of the film, they did it for a very specific reason, which is that the once we get inside the computer, Jeff Bridges has created a copy of himself, which in the original film, his program version of himself was known as Clue, codified likeness, likeness utility. utility. Right, a digital version of himself to go inside the computer and execute his commands. And so that that clue, that version of him is frozen in time, right? So it looks like that 1989 Kevin Flint. So there's a, a great story reason for why they had to do this. But it it's still this is 2010, which means that the production on this went to, you know, late 2007 uh, and it had been in pro- in process for a longer time than that. And the technology just it, wasn't there. It just wasn't there yet. Right, another six years, seven years, right? Because by the time we get to digitally de-aging Michael Douglas in Ant-Man, it looks pretty good. Like he looks, that looks fine. Um, but still, it, so a lot of people hated that component of it, and I completely understand. And honestly, for this scene, if they had just let him exit without doing the face reveal, it would have been, been fine. Yeah, it would have been fine, uh, um, and and nobody would have complained. I do have to call out the fabulous black hole poster that is in Sam Flynn's childhood bedroom mm-hmm. that momentarily had me thinking, is Disney going to resurrect the black hole? But I guess the know? lack of success on the part of this film maybe hurt Do you know why that. that's there? <laughs> why? Because that was Kaczynski's next project. That's that what I had plan. thought, and then it just mm-hmm. kind of evaporated. Yeah, Kaczynski's next project was to do a revival of the black hole, which is another film from the dark times of Disney that has found purchase it is it is a harder watch now i have it 
Uh, I picked up a copy of it not too long ago. It's not as endearing um, as Tron. It is not. Not at all. Um, but it is epic in weird ways. Yeah. Um, there is also, I don't know if you saw it, but in the, the little three-inch action figure scene as it's zooming, uh, there is a Vincent figure in the background <laughs> as well. So yeah, there, there are a couple of black hole references here that were, I believe were intended by Kozinski to to preface a swing into into a black hole remake, but that never happened. Uh, I think if Tron had had found some success, maybe uh, it's possible anyway. Um, but in any case, yes, Disney was I, just I, a little more a little more abrupt. If you didn't have an immediate success, they're like, "Well, we're not going to waste any more time." <laughs> yeah, I mean the uh, you know the Marvel again the Marvel franchise success we've seen Disney take more risks because they're willing to amortize the success of the series over multiple films, right? A standalone film doesn't necessarily have to do well, right? So you can have a Thor dark world just kind of be like, uh, but because the rest of the series is doing fine, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and foot the bill for Thor three because there's a good idea here. Or we need it to do this part of the story or whatever. Whereas at this point, none of those franchise hooks had been established yet. And, and basically, if your first movie didn't make money, you ain't getting more. It's not going to work. Now, I, I will say that there was a Disney XD animated series, right, for what that's worth. But they did attempt to sort of keep this thing going for a little bit, but it only lasted a season. So, you know, Disney, they had their big swing. They tried. It didn't really go anywhere. We'll talk about maybe why it did or didn't, right? Uh, so that scene ends. Kevin Flynn disappears. Uh, and then we get the first of... Uh, so another thing that was going on big in movies at this time, thanks to Avatar, was 3D. Uh, so I saw this in the theater with my family. As did I. And uh, it was actually one of the first movies that uh, I had gone to see. And we actually took my daughter. <laughs> it was like maybe 16 months at the time. Um, cause I was desperate to see it and I couldn't get babysitting. And I was like, we're, we're going to see trauma. <laughs> this is happening. And the baby is coming with us. And I felt so bad because my wife who's wonderful. Uh, she basically stood to the side, uh, for I'd say 60% of this film, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of taking care of our, our daughter who was, who's amazingly good, but still, you know, just a kid. Movies and, and, and she allowed me to, to you know, have this, but I, I went back and we watched it again, you know, several times, you know, I did my due diligence to make it a success. God damn it. Uh, but in any case, uh, this film was, was being shown in 3d. Uh, the entire film is not in 3d. It does not go into 3d except for, uh, a couple of scenes right at the beginning that are meant to be in the grid. And then once we get inside the grid, so inside they, the computer they limited is 3d. It very smartly to just and super the grid. well. Yeah, I mean, this is probably one of the few films at this time, which, you know, I enjoyed the 3D in Avatar that was, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, it, was, it was the best 3D that I'd ever seen at that point, save for maybe Coraline, because I saw that in 3D as well. And that actually, because it was animated and they were able to control all the elements, that actually and was I'll, really good. And I'll be straight up with you. Coraline is the only 3D movie I still watch in 3D. Yeah, it's, it's really well done, man. Like, they use it so, so well. I kind of wish that Leica would still lean into the three into 3d because the the stop motion animation stuff just looks great with that um but in any case we you know but the 3d in this film actually does work 
and it makes it better because now the computer world feels more foreign in terms of the filmmaking experience and the film viewing experience. It, it serves the function of bringing you in by having it feel so strange. So we get a, a little breakdown that Kevin Flynn had disappeared, that that is the last night that anybody ever saw Kevin Flynn, that he is, has uh, disappeared. Um, Alan Bradley has stepped in to both raise his son and also to run his company, at least for the time being. And that, uh, you know, Kevin Flynn, this tech entrepreneur, he's kind of positioned, you know, it's, it's funny in the first game, he's a video game designer, right? Like that's it. But he ends up, he ends up running this massive company called Incom, which is very much meant to be, you know, your sort of Microsoft, your sort of Apple kind of company. And so in this film, they position him as one of those tech giants, right? He was, he was, he had become more than just a video game designer. He which had, is, that's you know, not an unheard of story. I no, mean, no. when we were kids, we, we would not buy anything like that. Like, what do you mean game developer becomes big wig? But looking at how tech companies in the 80s started, Tron, the entire history of it is a really good depiction of what can happen to people in the tech industry and where mm -hmm. they can go with their careers. Yeah, you rise up through these, you know, sort of alternate means, but then eventually sort of become the spearhead of this much larger thing and, and by all accounts Kevin Flynn took his success with income and tried to do really good things with it um, unlike you know the David Warner character in the first one who seemed to you know sort of use the the power of the company to further his own ends right you know his own sort of you know, selfish goals whereas Kevin Flynn became this kind of selfless tech entrepreneur so he disappears uh, and our our hero of Tron 2 of Tron Legacy which is a film about legacy right? What mm -hmm. you leave behind like that. It, it is a very appropriate title for this film because it is about the, the legacy of Sam's father, the legacy that Sam himself will eventually leave behind, uh, you know, destiny, like all of these really, really cool ideas get sort of thrown out immediately. Um, cause one thing I will say about the script of this film, and I will, f I will fight people who say that this film doesn't have a good script. This yes. script has more examples of setup and payoff in it than pretty much anywhere else. Everything that is set up in the first 15 minutes of this movie is paid off and referenced and utilized effectively in the end of this film. And in fact, you could, you could say that there's enough here that sets up the rest of the franchise as they saw it, and then it was just a non-starter. There's so much building going on in this film. Mm -hmm. It's kind of incredible. Yeah, so... Uh, Basically, then we cut to another very Fincher-esque sequence of Sam uh, on a motorcycle. We don't know who it is yet, but obviously that's that's who it's supposed to be. Uh, and he is zooming through uh, city traffic. Uh, it's it's following him. It's this great tracking crane shot that is just flying down the road. Uh, again, it, it feels sort of like what David Fincher would do a couple years after this with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and some of the shots of Lisbeth traveling on her motorcycle. Um, but it's, it's very controlled. It's very locked off. Um, there's no handheld in this film whatsoever. Like, I don't think there is a handheld shot in this movie, uh, and to its benefit. Like, I don't, I don't think it needs it. I don't think it would benefit from any handheld camera work. You know, we talked a lot in the last episode about how the handheld sort of naturalistic camera work of Twilight really grounds that film, makes it feel real. This film has none of that. And I think that is by design. It is intended to feel very foreign and strange, but beautiful at the same time. 
So Sam is zooming through the city, and we find him arriving at Incom, breaking inside. There is a great reference to the original as he opens this big uh, security door in the back. There's a famous scene in the original Tron where the characters open one of these big doors, which apparently they had just found. It was at some place that they had access to, and they're like, oh, they'll, they'll go in this door. And it takes it took forever to open, and they turned it into a joke. So they reference that, and uh, we find out that there's a board meeting at Incom. Right, so this is the company that Kevin Flynn helped to uh, make successful, and they're having a board meeting uh, late at night in order to one join the Nikkei Stock Exchange, uh, which of course is a, a big thing for a company to become publicly tradable all around the world, but also to announce the release of their next operating system. So we find out that Flynn, uh, after his success in video games, designed an operating system. Right, this is again the Windows reference. Right, he's like a Bill Gates figure. He's designing Windows, but his operating system was always designed to be free. But now the company in Flynn's absence has turned it into their biggest moneymaker. So there's a little bit of a swipe there's at Microsoft There's a lot Microsoft of Microsoft here, versus you know? Apple jokes. Yeah. Um, which that was, that was so much bigger um, in the 80s and early 90s. So it's almost like a throwback in and of itself to the, the mm -hmm. conflict between you know, Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs and that... I don't know. I, I liked that. I thought it was it was a nice little nod to some of our tech monopolies. <laughs> For sure. And we already see, cause, you know, Joseph Kaczynski directed this film. Um, I guess we can briefly talk about him. But one of the things that I, I think on, especially in multiple viewings that you pick up with this movie, is that the city and this building and where, you know, all of this stuff is taking place has the exact same color palette and the same sort of visual style as the computer world that Sam will eventually enter, right? It's, it's lit. There are these, you know, bright lines surrounded by darkness. Um, you know, it's just, there's a, an incredible visual style to this movie. So Joseph Kaczynski, this was his first film, first feature film, I should say. And it doesn't look like a, a director's first film, right? Like not at all. This film is too polished, too well put together to be a dude's first swing, basically. Like any director's first swing. This yeah. this movie is is incredible looking from start to finish. And so Kaczynski, uh, I've, I've been fascinated by his career from the beginning, basically because of this film. Uh, so Kaczynski came from commercials, as many directors do. Like um, David Fincher. Like David Fincher. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. So, it no, keeps going up. <laughs> the parallels are there, man. Like Kaczynski has not taken that track at all, but there are some significant parallels. So he came, but the thing that that shocked me in looking through his, you know, filmography, is that he is responsible for some of my favorite video game commercials ever. <laughs> Which, I mean, video game commercials are their own thing. Most video games don't have ad campaigns that, you know, go on television anymore. It's it's just too expensive. But Well, and who watches he, TV? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But so he did the Mad World commercial for Gears of War, which won tons of awards. And is is great. Like I, I, I'll still watch that commercial occasionally. Like a that song is is wonderful. It's a great version of it. But he he did the Mad World commercial. He did the Starry Night commercial for Halo Three that opens with the two kids laying in the grass, and then we realize, that. and it transitions into uh, one of the kids is Master Chief. 
And so he like grabs his helmet, picks it up, and then he like throws down the, the stasis bubble that they had in Halo 3. Like it's one of my favorite video game commercials ever. And I remember when it came out, it like blew people's minds, like blew their minds. So we'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, he directed that one and he directed the first live action commercial for Destiny, uh, which is a game I still play to this day. So I have dude, only just broken my Destiny habit. I know, I know, I know, and and I completely understand why. Like the, I find myself more frustrated by the game than not these days, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm still hanging in there. I still still plow through it occasionally. But in any case, like this dude has some serious bona fides from that world, right? Like if you follow video games, those are groundbreaking commercials that established those those franchises as legitimate media enterprises uh, in ways that they perhaps hadn't been visualized as before. So he he's not an inexperienced guy. Like that is is definitely true. But this is his first feature length big swing. And I I have absolutely zero reservation in saying that this is still one of the most visually stunning films ever made. Um I think once you get to the grid, it is it's unbelievable. Uh what he's able to pull off. Uh, and it's seamless. Like the he de- he intentionally designed and presents the world of the computer, so that all of the compositing work they would have had to do, all of the green screen and blue screen filming that they had to do, it is seamless. You cannot tell where the set begins and ends, and where the digital components come in, and it's amazing. I, I it still holds up. Watching it, you know, today to review, it, it still looks fantastic. So in any case, that's my, my little Joseph Kaczynski, uh, everybody should, should care about Joseph Kaczynski statement, because you should. Um, he made another movie based on an original story that he originally published as a comic called Oblivion with Tom Cruise a couple mm-hmm. years after this, which again, story-wise, uh, you know, you, we could argue about it. It's, it's a fairly straightforward. But you know, boy, it's pretty to watch. But God, that movie is gorgeous. And one of the first films, as far as I know, uh, you know, those of you who are like, you know, watching stuff like The Mandalorian, uh, most of those are filmed now using a a 360 surround uh, LED screen, basically, where they digitally project the background that is mapped to move with the camera as it shifts through the space so they can have a live background being shot with actors that is completely digital and is caught on film. So they don't have to do compositing after the fact. They do it live. And so they call that the volume, right? And it's a company that will come in. They help you set it up. They help you design it. And then you, you sort of program the, the cameras inside the space to do your motion tracking for you. Uh, it's great. And if you've seen The Mandalorian, which everybody should, uh, it's, again, seamless. You cannot tell. Kaczynski was the first guy to use that technology in Oblivion. And that's how they did all of this, the, the stuff that takes place in, in like up in the clouds in their home in Oblivion. Like the dude knows what he's doing and visually his stuff is kind of unparalleled. Uh, he is currently working on the Top Gun sequel, which I, I cannot tell you how excited I am for. Not because I, I think Top Gun's like a brilliant 80s classic. Like it, it definitely ranks up there. But I can't wait to see what this dude does with jet photography. Yeah. Which is notoriously difficult and requires technical precision that most directors want nothing to do with. Because it is it is tiresome and complicated to get footage 
of planes that looks interesting as they're flying around. But I am thrilled beyond belief to see what this dude does with that because uh, I know it's going to be great. But so, okay, again, Joseph Kaczynski, Love Train, uh, I'm, uh, I'm hopping off at the He's station. He's great. He has movies. <laughs> He's great. Watch his movies. They're real good. Um, so from a story standpoint, we move very quickly. Uh, Sam goes into the building. He breaks in. We get all of these awesome shots of him in a server room that, again, sort of is like, hey, this is kind of like the world of computers. He breaks in, and he basically takes this brand new version of the operating system they're getting ready to release, presumably to make a bunch of money, and he releases it for free online. Um, ruining their plans, messing up this big release. But we find out that he's actually the guy who owns the company. So he has every right to do it. Um, he is the majority shareholder. He inherited them from his father, but he is elected as his legacy <laughs> to do nothing with it. So he's living uh, in kind of like a, a garage, a shed, um, and and he just kind of goes in and, and dicks around with the company once a year <laughs> to cause problems. Yep, it's and it's his yearly prank on the company. Uh, and then he jumps off the building and, and does a, a base jump off the top of the building and uh, gets captured by the police. We get an awesome scene of him coming out of the jail. And uh, he kind of knows the dude in the impound lot. He's like, hey, what's up, Larry, or whatever. So this, like, this is a regular thing. It happens. And uh, he gets home, and who's waiting for him but Alan Bradley, right? So Tron, uh, or at least people who from the original 1982 would know him as Tron. Uh, but Alan ha is now sort of sidelined at the company. There's a new CEO that we're briefly introduced to. But more importantly, we're introduced to a character that was obviously sequel bait, and that is uh, Dillinger's son, mm -hmm. played by Cillian Murphy. Cillian Murphy from Sunshine. My beautiful um, blue-eyed bread. Uh, he has just a couple of speaking lines. He is the one of the people who has helped design this new version of the operating system. And uh, he was obviously being set up. And, and there is a cut scene that's, I don't know if it wound up on the Blu-ray, but uh, it's referenced in a couple of different spots. There was a cut scene where... He gets a phone call right at the end of like the big CEO meeting. That's uh, they find out that he released the, the OS for free. He gets a phone call and he walks out. That phone call was his father uh, asking what had happened and what was going on, implying that Dillinger was still sort of manipulating NCOM behind the scenes. Right. So again, some sequel bait, some cool stuff. Apparently, David Warner did some voiceover work uh, to to you know be a part of the film, and then it was cut as as things broke down. But so Sam basically doesn't want to be involved with the company. He has no interest in running things. But Bradley shows up. They have a, a really good kind of like pseudo father's you know pseudo son moment, and then Bradley drops the bomb that he has received a page of all things. Still rocking the pager. Still rocking I love the pager. That scene. It's really good. He's still writing the pager, uh, and he got a page from his dad, uh, or at least from his dad's old number, uh, because he told Alan before he disappeared, you always keep this pager on. Never, ever take it off. And Alan had, because they're good friends, and they, they were friends for a long time, he'd always done that. Um, now, the other cool little moment, or the other cool little thing uh, about this garage that Sam lives in, which is literally just like storage containers, uh, is that it is Dumont Industries. Yep. 
which is a re another reference to the original 1982 Tron. Dumont was one of the original designers of the okay. system, and his company was one of the ones that was incorporated and became Incom. Uh, so he's a major character in the first film, and uh, they do a little name drop for him here, which is, is really nice, again, understanding the, the film and, and its, its history. Uh, so Sam is tasked with going to his dad's old office in Flynn's Arcade, which was a major location in the original film, because once Flynn was excised from the company, the only way that he could make money off of the games that he had invented was the quarters that people would chunk into them in the, the arcade that he ran. So Flynn's Arcade apparently is still standing. Alan has the keys. He gives them to Sam and says... You know, and Sam's like, what? You know, I think I'm just going to find him sitting there and be like, oh, I forgot, lost track of time, kiddo. And he says, wouldn't that be something, right? And and we're off to the races, right? Like, that is our, the first act of this film is really, it's it's 19 minutes and change, right? That's the first act of this movie. Like, we get into this very quickly. Normally, you know, in a 90-minute film or, you know, 100-minute film, you're looking at 25 to 30 minutes for your first act. This one, we're flying. Uh, he gets to Flynn's, he goes down, and sure enough, uh, set to a rockin' 80s soundtrack of Journey and, uh, <laughs> oh, who does Sweet Eurythmics. Dreams? I can't even remember now. The Eurythmics, that's right, Annie Lennox. Um, he uh, goes into the arcade and he finds a secret office behind the Tron machine, right, that he'd never found before. Goes down and sure enough, his dad's keys are still in the door and there is a computer, a very nice computer, on inside. He sits down, we actually get, and I love it when movies actually take the time to know what real computer interfaces look like. Yeah. I know that's a very small thing, but anytime a dude on a screen types grep, and I'm like, yes, all right, that's somebody understands real. how computers really work, right? Like, they're not going to sit down like, uh, oh God, what's the scene in Swordfish where Hugh Jackman's got like 15 keyboards and 27 that's screens, and he's just like God. flipping between them, and it's all, you know, it's just... It's not what computers really are. Uh, so he sits down and uh, he activates the last program, the last application that his father used because his dad is still signed in on the computer. He is still logged in as the current user. And we get an updated version of the digitizing scene from the original Tron. And Sam Flynn in the, that moment is pulled into uh, what they refer to in the, the film as the grid. Right, which is presumably the new world that Kevin Flynn built inside this computer uh, after separating it from Incom's mainframe, which is where the original film takes place, basically inside the, the giant mainframe computer at the center of the company. Uh, but Kevin Flynn had separated from that and had, you know, set up his own thing in this place, uh, presumably to do experimentation. So Sam Flynn is brought into the grid, and uh, everything sort of kicks off from there. We get a lot of, there's a ton of just really cool 80s references here. There's one of those old uh, digital football games that, I mean, I had one, where, you know, you would just hit the buttons to dodge the dude as you were running down the field and score, you know, there's one of those laying on the couch. And, uh, you know, then Sam is brought in. Again, there's, there's a ton of great photography in this section. It's the, the, the lighting is great. The, um, the, the camera setups themselves are super good. They tell a great story. And, and then we're thrown into the world of the computer. And there's a digitally, there's a modeled version of Flynn's arcade. 
you know, he runs outside. We get all of this. It's such a shocking and tremendous difference, right? Like it is night and day and I love it. Uh, because like the outside world is kind of dingy. It's, it's a little bit Brown. Again, it feels kind of like a David Fincher movie. And then we go inside the computer and everything's just like bright lights, and black and, and orange, just like all of these awesome colors. And it's all kind of neon infused referencing the, the simplified computer graphics of the original film, but updated in super smart ways. Um, also it feels like a more advanced world right? Like the computing technology has improved. Right. So they're able to do more, which I think is, is awesome. It's still a computer from 1989, which again, people had issue with. They're like, how does it look that good? This wasn't that good of a computer. And I'm like, all right, dude, like <laughs> calm down. <laughs> right? It's not like what's happening inside the computer is, is being rendered by a graphics card, like on a gaming PC or something like this is just supposed to represent what living inside a computer would feel like. But uh, so I don't know what were your, yeah, like what? So, what were your impressions? I mean, first time you saw this, I mean, I I remember being just, I mean, honest flabbergasted. I was like, wow. It was one <laughs> of those moments where I I genuinely felt like Kaczynski had gone back and rewatched Tron. I was like, okay, what did kids think and see when they watched this film? Because yeah. In my head, as a child, the grid was a very exciting and very interesting and very colorful place, and it feels like the upgrades that he made to the, the visual style of the grid is almost as good as the fantasy that I had built as a kid. Right. Um, I mean, it's kind of like going back and watching like the Transformers cartoon now. Yeah. Like, that, sh that, is, that is garbage. I, I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to be dismissive, but like, it doesn't look good. It doesn't sound that good. The stories aren't great. But the world and universe that that was able to build in the mind of an impressionable child was incredible, right? And endearing. And those characters stick with you. And it, it, you're right. It just feels like making all of the intelligent upgrades to that world while sticking to what is familiar. Like, it's honestly what all of these, like, sequels and pre-boots and, you know, all these other things that they were trying to do during this, like, 10-year period from 05 to 15, and even today, although I think it's slowed down a bit, it's what all of them were trying to do, but most of them failed miserably at, right? Like, to remind you of what you know, to give you the nostalgia kits, but also show you something really new and really interesting. Like, I, this one does it, and does it super, super well. I agree. Um, so Sam is immediately captured. Uh, we get a nice little, again, setup and payoff when he was, you know, captured after jumping off the building. There's a, you know, helicopter spotlight that hits him and he stops. Uh, the exact same thing happens at this time. It's a recognizer, which are these huge sort of flying tanks that were introduced in the original film. He gets captured. He meets a couple of people. He sort of name drops his dad. And then the program's like, you need to shut up. Like, you need to say nothing. <laughs> Be quiet. And then he is immediately dropped because uh, they think he's a program that has somehow um, camouflaged himself, you know, lost his data. Uh, we're immediately reminded that all programs are supposed to have a disk, right? A data disk. That was a huge sort of plot point in the original film. He doesn't have one. So he's dropped off at uh, this, this giant uh, sort of pyramid-like structure, which I guess we're supposed to believe is the, the gaming grid. Uh, and he is is 
installed in the system, I guess is, is the simplest way to, to describe it. He is turned for all intents and purposes into a program. He's not, but he's given, you know, the visual uh, look of them. They kind of sort of put the cool armor on. Almost like he's given a, a user account, so to speak. Right. Yeah. He's, he's literally being sort of registered with the system. And, and he is literally categorized as a user. Right. Like, they know he's different. Like, nobody really understands what he is at this point, but they know that there's something else about him. Uh, the assembly of the suit is really good. There's some nice, very subtle digital effects going on there. And then he he lights up, which most people believe uh, – well, I don't know about most people, but I know a lot of people believe that the, the light-up effect is digital, but it is Ooh. not. Those were, um, those were hell on the actors, weren't they? Yeah. The suits are are real. The LED lighting in them is real. They were very hot. Uh, most of them had an internal uh, AC system to try and cool the actors off that was still not super effective. So it apparently was very difficult to wear them for extended periods of time. But it's a, it's a practical effect, uh, which you're, you're going to actually see in a film that takes place inside a computer that has a tremendous special effects budget. It is sh- surprising to me how much Kaczynski intent, was intent upon doing things in camera. Uh, which is one of the things I like about him. I think directors who struggle to find practical solutions to those problems rather than continually relying upon CG to fill in those gaps for them, generally they're directors that I respect. Uh, and I, I like their work. And and Kaczynski certainly falls in that category. But it adds to that thing I mentioned earlier of it being seamless. Like you, At a certain point, you can't really tell which is which. And that in and of itself is cool. It's right? a really well-constructed fantasy world. And, yeah. and it doesn't, I mean, there's really no, you know that computer graphics are a huge part of it, but no, absolutely. There's, yeah. still, there's still a lot about it that feels like real sets, even though they aren't, they feel real, they look real. And I think part mm-hmm. of that does come from the suits being practical. Being practical, yeah. Because you get, the, you, with them being practical, you get, re, you get accurate reflections, you know, just all of the little things that help to make something feel real. You know, the more practical you do, the more likely you're going to, you know, be in that circumstance. So uh, the suits are practical a lot. They did build a lot of sets. A lot of the sets are practical or at least, you know, practical for a a huge chunk of it and then extended. But so Sam is is brought in. He's given a disc. Uh, We see his eyes light up when the disc is plugged in, implying that he's sort of activated within the system now. Uh, and then he is inserted into the game grid, right? Which again is a direct reference to the original 1982 Tron. Uh, Jeff Bridges is basically has the same thing done to him. He's put into the game grid as, as dispensable as a program that can be killed for entertainment. It's kind of like gladiator games, if you will. And uh, the same thing happens to him. And he is immediately thrown into combat with another program. And uh, we get... Again, one of the iconic things of the original film, which were the uh, the disc battles, right? Mm-hmm. So, in the original Tron, they had uh, frisbees were very popular in the early 1980s. Hey, frisbees they, are still cool. They're still <laughs> cool, and and they basically just had painted frisbees, and they would throw them at each other, and uh, it's a super cheesy effect, but it was super cool. And they had video games about it, you know, all of these cool things. And so this is, we get an immediately updated version of that as Sam is fighting another program and they're hurling their discs at each other, parts of the floor disappearing. You know, it's, it's a very, it's a really, really well executed action scene. 
uh, Sam, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> And so he kind of is is getting his butt kicked for the most part, but then, you know, sort of figures his way out. One of the things I like about the first part of the movie is that they they're pretty quick to show you that Sam is physically adept, right? Like he's he's strong and he's good at driving motorcycles and jumping off buildings and stuff. So he's not I, I think they intentionally set up the first part of the story so that some of the more physical things that he does inside the computer, we don't reject Right, because in the original movie, Jeff Bridges is kind of like this lethargic computer programmer, well, I'm gonna, right? I'm gonna put something you know? out there. Jeff Bridges made it perfectly clear that he could handle all of the acrobatics in the film when he took his shirt off in the upstairs scene at the arcade. Yeah, and yes, I still yeah, remember that wrong. very oh, yeah. clearly. It's, it's an iconic. <laughs> sort of burned in, in my brain, actually. No, that's true. Very true. Um, so Sam basically is, is thrown to the grid. It's a really cool action sequence. He wins his first battle. He's thrown up against another one. He pieces out. He has no, no desire to, uh, fight another guy, winds up beating him. And, uh, this whole time, this mysterious figure is watching him. Um, so Tron had a very clear way of communicating who was bad. Basically those people were colored red, (laughs) generally red or yellow. And, uh, the good ones were blue. Right. And so that is maintained in this film. Neutral or good programs are generally blue or green. And then uh, the bad programs are red or orange. And they've or also established like white and yellow and some other colors to kind of right. mix it up a little bit. To mix it up a bit. It was much more simplified in the original. But they, they give it some variety, some spice. Um, but so he's being watched by this mysterious figure. They, they do some awesome helmet work in this movie. This movie has good helmets. Um, And uh, so he's being watched and observed. You know, the system doesn't know who he is, so he's listed as unknown. And he winds up winning through the the tournament, and he faces down uh, Rensler, right? So Rensler is, uh, you know, the champion, uh, I suppose, is is the way he's positioned. But he uses two discs. And he looks Uh, super badass. He has a full face mask on. Which, oh, so cool. Wow. Um, yeah. Pretty much as soon as he walks onto the scene, it's like, I, I want to be you and own your action figure. And he did, yeah, you're the, so cool. And he like does music this kind of changes. guttural oh. growling thing. When he, right. He has this oh, almost guttural so growl to him. That's, that's really interesting. Um, but uh, the music changes and it gets more intense uh, he does tons of cool flips. There's some speed ratcheting stuff that Kaczynski does. It, it's it's just, it's, it's sweet as hell, man. Like, it's just a great scene. Yeah. Um, but so Renzler plays with him a little bit, and, and uh, there's him. this gravity switching stuff that goes on. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a fun fight scene. And basically it ends with Renzler defeating Sam easily, but Sam gets hurt and he bleeds. And we have Which, a great blood droplets shot. Really good I blood droplets shot. I love that shot. I love good and movie blood. <laughs> a good movie blood. It's hard to come by, man. And uh, basically, we find that the, the system finds out that Sam is a user, right? So in the world of the computer, um, in the original Tron, users are uh, or were deified, right? So Tron often references in the original film that users are, are like their gods, Right, well, they don't they even believe commands. that users are necessarily real, even. No, no, they're they're mythical, 
right? And the fact that Jeff Bridges' character is a user causes tremendous <laughs> cognitive dissonance for Tron because he thinks that users always know what they're doing because they, you know, they have all this information. And then Jeff Bridges is like, nah, kind man, of we're a kind doofus. Of just, <laughs> just, we're just figuring stuff out. We don't know. And, and so in this world, that is not the case, right? And we find out in the next couple of sequences that Clue, uh, Jeff Bridges' alternate character, the program, the computer version of him, has now taken over the system. Kevin Flynn has been excised. And users, rather than being deified, are now villainized. And uh, they're seen as evil and uh, oppressors. Right, who are controlling us, and we've now become free. So he comes to meet Clue. Uh, we get uh, basically he takes his helmet off, and we get the digitally de-aged Jeff Bridges. And so Sam initially believes it is his father, and then of course Clue reveals that it is not him, and that you know his being there has some purpose, but we don't know what. Uh, and then he decides to throw him back on the grid for. I'm going to be super honest. Like one of my favorite scenes in this movie easily it's what we were all waiting for yeah like it is because the one of the iconic moments from the original tron is is the light cycle battle uh it's one of, it happens very early in that film jeff bridges is uh immediately thrown in with tron and another program rom uh thrown into a light cycle arena battle versus a bunch of bad programs and the light cycles are motorcycles uh designed by sid mead so beautiful uh, Sid Mead, if, if you don't know, is one of the, the pinnacle uh, production designers of the 1980s. Uh, he contributed to everything. Like if you just go look up what Sid Mead did, it's it's a laundry list of all of the movies that have now become foundational. You know, especially science fiction, but just foundational films. Like, dude's an amazing visual designer. Um, so they're thrown into this, and basically they're motorcycles, and the way you win is by using these light trails that are left by the cycle to block your opponent, right? They made a, a video game of this. It's shown Several in the movie as being games. a real world. Yeah. Um, and, and it was, uh, I played it a ton. It was a fun game. Because basically it's sort of like, sort of like Snake, right? You're just trying to like create a pathway that, you know, causes the other person to crash. It's just incredibly fast paced. and Yeah, even the original, that, <laughs> even the original, that scene still kind of holds up. Like the way it's shot, the way they executed it, it, it still looks really cool. And we just get this awesome upgraded version of that. And so um, he's thrown back onto the grid. Uh, Clue confronts him. And they, we get this light cycle battle. That's just incredible. It's, it's multi-leveled now. Instead of just being on a flat grid like in the original, when they build the light cycles out, we get kind of a, oh, there's another movie that kind of did this, uh, where you sort of grab something and then it kind of builds around you and comes into existence and you see all the moving parts. There was another movie that did it not too long ago. I, I, totally cannot think of it right now but it's it's just a, a super cool effect and um it, i don't even necessarily want to try to describe it visually but other than that's badass yeah it's just pretty much from start to finish even if you, if nothing else in this movie works for you that sequence is just cool um so he and a couple other programs have to go up and clue himself decides to run uh in the race and and to, to try and defeat him and then he's rescued at the end by a new character to the franchise, uh, a, a female character played by Olivia Wilde named Cora. So he's rescued on a, a 
what is it called? The Light Runner, I think is what they call it. Everything has cool names in this. Uh, it had an original Tron 2, but you know they, they definitely spent time trying to name, sh name stuff really well. Um, but he's, she's rescued, and he finally is taken to meet his father. Uh, so Kevin Flynn is alive, but he has been trapped inside the computer for... And, and I've, I've read a couple of articles about this, because he mentions sort of offhandedly that the computer time is uh, elongated, right? So for every hour in the real world, it's like, like a eight day. to eight. It's, it's, like a like a, it's like a day for them. So at this point, Kevin Flynn has been in the computer for 20 plus years. And the indication is that it, it, I, a few people did the math and, and I'm, I'm not going to look up the articles or cite sources, so I apologize. <laughs> but he, he's been in there for something like 10,000 years effectively right uh it has been a long time for him to be inside the system and uh for the bulk of that time he has been hiding from clue because clue as we come to find out very quickly needs flynn's disc so here is where all of that scientific gobbledygook becomes a, a part of the story and Again, I understand it. Uh, it's it's not super explained. They don't spend a ton of time on it. It's really just a couple of sequences with Flynn here as he's kind of explaining what happened to him. Because that's Sam's question, and, and, it's, and it's a good question, driven by a character's very simple motivation. I want to know what happened to my father. You've been in here. Why didn't you come back? And so Flynn, uh, after catching up just a little bit, introducing Cora, we find out that she's been living with Flynn and helping him. He's been teaching her right? So exposing her to literature and uh, philosophical concepts of all kinds. I love there's, uh, things. There's, there's a little bit of jealousy at first. I don't know if you ever picked up on that. It's really yeah. subtle, but there's a little yeah. bit of jealousy that she has gotten to have the father that he didn't. Yeah. She's been with him for, for who knows how long. And Sam has been deprived of that. And, and it does seem it, it's, you know, their, their first few interactions are, are pretty at arm's length, right? Sam's kind of like, who are you? Why are you here? Why are you a part of this? And justifiably so. Um, so, Cora is introduced. Um, you know, we get a couple of references to things she's been learning about. Um, you know, a couple of philosophical concepts about sort of removing yourself from situations to to try and you know better the situation through inaction, which becomes a big part of what Flynn has been doing for the time being. Um, and then also a love of Jules Verne, right? So we've talked about this being a very classic adventure story, right? This is a very straightforward, you know, guy goes to strange land, has adventures, has experiences, come back, comes back from strange land, changed, right? Very simple. And, and so we get a, a Jules Verne reference here, sort of seeding that in the, the mind of, of the viewer, at least for me. But uh, so Cora is is this strange figure. We don't really understand her role in all of this just yet, as a, apart from just being an assistant to Flynn, someone helping him. And so Flynn goes into a, a fairly long explanation of what happened. Right, Clue rose up. We get a awesome flashback where we see young Tron, uh, or, you know, young Bruce Boxleitner as Tron, building the system, having conversations about what they're going to do with the grid. Um two digitally de-aged Kevin Flynn's next to each other having conversations. And they are um, appropriately different. Like looking yeah. at how they styled, you know, the hair and clothes and a little bit of, you know, heaviness in the face that they really did want to show you that there's a difference between the two, which I thought right. was 
extra nice little detail. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of really subtle things with production design here, which again, you know, we'll talk as we get towards the end of this about whether or not the story works, whether it does have that coldness that people accused it of. But everything in this film and every component of its production design is intentional and designed to either reveal something about a, a character or the world itself or, or help us understand a concept that the film is trying to express. And one, one little moment that I have to give praise to that, that occurs just before that flash forward um, is just the moment where Kevin Flynn sees Sam for the first time since he was yeah. a little boy. That, like, if that doesn't punch you right in the feel sack, I, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah, um, I mean, it's an intentionally, de again, it's an intentionally designed moment. And I'm going to be super honest. Like, I am, I am on board. Any, anything having to do with fathers and sons. Yeah. I am on board. And see, I I'm am, not. I am ready. Like, I am, I am the guy. The opposite. I am the, the dad <laughs> narrative hater. Right. Yeah. And I know that. And it still worked. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I've, all you got to do is have some sort of like, you know, meaningful distance between a father and son that gets reconciled over the course of your movie. And I'm there like emotionally, I am prepared. My heart is open. My mind is willing, like, uh, you know, say what you want, what that says about me, but like all of that father and son stuff works in this movie. And it, and it, and part of that is because, you know, the digitally de-aged Jeff Bridges is now transitioned to the villain of the film, right? So, um, you know, again, the, the the nature of his face, the Uncanny Valley, all the stuff you might want to complain about, all of that gets transferred to, we're inside a computer, it's young him. Now we get real ass Jeff Bridges, right? Mm. Jeff Bridges mm. with the beard and the age and the gravitas that has come with him growing older as an actor and and he's incredible in this. And like he does just, so much. If you don't, if you don't like Jeff Bridges as an actor, I guess, I guess that's fine. You know, again, what's wrong with you? But that's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. This is one of those performances that that stands up to me as very serious and very well done on his part. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this is not the dude, even though he brings a lot of that part of his personality into this role just because that's how he is no this is jeff bridges that right. he is the dude i mean everyone has has kind of agreed yeah, that he fairly lives well and known fact at this that, point that lifestyle um but this this feels like a very sophisticated portrayal of a very complicated relationship between a father and son which i i enjoyed right. um I just that's one of my my hands down favorite moments just when they see each other and you're not really sure at first if Jeff Bridges is going to recognize Garrett Hedlund as an mm. adult but then he does and it's like oh you punched me right in my heart. <laughs> yeah. And and the other thing about this is too is that Flynn has been there so long that you know when Cora says we have a guest he's like well, there are no guests, right? So he the other thing that I think is kind of subtle here, the the choice that they they could have gone a different direction, but I'm glad they didn't. Kevin Flynn entered the computer in 1989, right? One of the things going on in Southern California in, in the 1980s was a a real and serious reconnection with what we would unfortunately call Eastern philosophy, 
right? And especially in the tech sector, it became a, a huge thing. We've got guys like Steve Jobs, right? Who is the the poster boy for this, right? And I feel like the screenwriters and, and Jeff Bridges, who apparently had a lot of input on Kevin Flynn as a character in this film, I feel them saying like, okay, if a dude was frozen in time, taken out of our world in 1989 and forced into this scenario where he has to now cope with being trapped inside this place for thousands of years, what experience would he have in real life to draw upon to find solace, right? And and I honestly buy that that tech entrepreneur would have had some experience with, with Eastern uh, religion and Eastern faith. And, and he would pull that in as an anchor point to give him some kind of solidity. And definitely mixed with that sort of acid dropping hippie 100%. culture that gave birth yeah. to a lot of the radical tech figureheads that, that we're familiar with. Um, right. So uh, people who complained about that, I never understood it. Cause I'm like, but, that's what a tech billionaire from the 1980s probably would have had as a spiritual anchor, if anything, right? So the fact that he has that, I, I completely buy it. It makes absolute sense to me that he would, would fall back on that. Um, but I, I guess that's just me. I don't know. I Again, I didn't, I didn't see it as a problem because I, looking back at the character they built in the first film, it felt... It fits. It felt like natural to me that this is the person, the kind of kooky person that he turned into, because he is a bit strange in Tron Legacy oh, when yeah. we meet him. No, I mean, like, Alan Bradley's constantly like, dude, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Because Alan Bradley is, you know, again, if we want to turn this into the story of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, Alan Bradley is Bill Gates, right? He's the guy that sits down at his computer, he puts the programs together, makes it make sense. He's got the glasses. Or they're like he's a Wozniak. The, he's and, got the sweater jazz. vest. Yeah, maybe even a little bit of that. But, you know, Flynn is the idea guy, right? He's the, you know, we got to connect with people, man. You know, like, he's that dude. And and this is just like the, the 30, well, thousands of years <laughs> later version of that guy. Um, so a whole bunch of things happen very quickly. Flynn is... is the moment you're right. The moment between him and Sam is is gorgeous, and and Headland, you know, he he doesn't weep or cry, but he's somehow able to get that like teary eyed, red eyed expression, where you can tell he's like holding in all of his emotions. And then Flynn just kind of walks away. He's like, we'll have dinner in a little bit. Yeah, and, he and has obviously this something is wrong. Huge emotional breakup, and then he's just like, oh, okay, that's over. <laughs> right, and and we find out why here very shortly, but. Then we get the dinner scene, and here's where the, the gobbledygook and nonsense complaints come in. Because what Flynn begins to explain, and, and will now anchor the rest of the film and our understanding of what is happening, is, is poised on this conversation. So if you don't really get this conversation, a lot of the rest of the movie is not going to make a ton of sense to you. Even though I think it's, it's pretty simple what the rest of the characters want. So Clue has been trying to get at, Kevin's, uh, at Flynn's disc for all this time. And he's been unable to get it because Flynn is out in some sort of unconstructed space, right? Which is our first clue that there's something wrong with Cora. There's something different about her. Because the grid is the designed space that Flynn put together with Clue, right? It's where all the, the big buildings are and the lights and, you know, everything, everything that looks is like stored. Tron. 
Like if right, we think of it in terms of com- of a computer, it is where everything is kept. Right. It's it's the the programmed and built place. But Flynn lives out in this unconstructed digital space, a wasteland kind of thing, if you will. And Clue can't go there, right? And he doesn't know where to look. So Flynn has been in hiding for a very long time. So he has dinner, and he explains that the reason why he was spending so much time, and, and we're told at the beginning that he was writing books about the digital frontier, and that the future, we see a, a digitally de-aged version of him on like a bad television screen saying that the future was in there, right? It was in the computer. So um, we find out that as he was constructing the grid, something happened. And what we find what we find out is that what they call in the film isomorphic algorithms emerged from the system. Okay, now, isomorphic algorithm is a complicated term. It's not words we hear about. Algorithm, I think most people are familiar with. It's just a sequence of actions. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's sequences of actions, right? So computers have algorithms. When you tell them to do a thing, they do other things. But the isomorphic part is, is probably less, less well-known. And, and they do explain it to a certain extent, but an isomorphic thing is a thing that is like another thing in math. It, it occupies the same form, but with different component parts, right? If, if you will, it's a mm-hmm. very simplified explanation and there are lots of different definitions that we could probably plug in there, but the film seems to want to use it in that way. That's you can have a thing that is very much like another thing, but is made from something else. And so what they discovered, what they found as they were constructing the grid, Tron and, and Clue and Flynn, was these beings that emerged from that wasteland space, right? And and the, the implication, the word is never used, probably to maintain some level of, we don't want to piss anybody off, but basically what happened was as they were working, the computer created new life. It evolved on its own. Right in, Which, in the form of in the form of math. <laughs> why do I? I don't understand why everyone objected to that when we've had so many science fiction narratives that have done the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, call it artificial intelligence, call it what you want. Maybe if they dropped that term, people would have been more accepting. But what they were really trying to say is, because one of the the sort of founding principles of Tron is that a human being could be digitally copied and then placed inside a computer. Right now, the original Tron doesn't explain this. They they make no attempt to make sense of it because it's just a science fiction conceit. When That's computers it. were much cagier then, and people mm-hmm. had yeah, way you... less of a concept of what they could and couldn't do. Right. And so, in essence, what the isomorphic algorithms were were a equivalent to the digital form of a human being inside the computer. So they are formally like what Kevin Flynn is inside the machine when he digitizes himself, right? They have that same form, but they came naturally from the computer. So from that, once he realized what had happened, he realized that these digital humans that are very similar to us could be used to understand our own genetic code, to change our understanding of the universe (laughs) right you could you could use them and their similarity to us to foundationally change the way we understand the form of a human being and it's an absolutely ridiculous premise but it's a science fiction film made by walt 
Disney Pictures. And and they're really trying. I mean, like, honestly, they don't have to do that. They didn't have to. But they're really trying to swing big and explain where they're coming from. And, and they do so with terms that are, you know, from actual mathematics. Um, and, and I don't know if it just was, was too much to accept, which I, I'm willing to take. I mean, they probably could have just said, you know, these are human-like creatures that evolved inside the computer and, and they're more like us than we ever thought was possible, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But I appreciate that they tried, right? That, the, the, you know, somebody in that writer's room was like, man, what, you know, how could we explain this? And how could and, we tell this very traditional science fiction story and put a new spin on it? <laughs> Right, yeah. Because I, I have the feeling that as part of the franchise building, which again, they're absolutely doing here, uh, obviously Korra is meant to be a big part of where they're headed and and what the future of this might be. And so I think they were really trying to seed some future things that obviously we will probably never know what they were intended to be at this point, because even if Tron is allowed to come back in sort of a Tron 3, which has been rumored, I will go ahead and say that, because yeah, uh, Kaczynski has expressed interest about doing another one. Yeah, he's agreed to, to come back, and it looks like Tron 3 will happen, but uh, probably it's, so. it's yeah. not going to be a part of this story, I don't I'll think. I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked. If, if it is, it'll be because Kaczynski fights to make it so. Uh, but who knows, right? Disney, as, as a juggernaut right now, it, it may not care. But... In any case, um, so so the ISOs are this this new life, right? Created inside the computer that Flynn has discovered, and he, uh, in, in some of the other you know materials, there was a, they made a video game and whatever. Like the ISOs sort of worshipped Flynn as a as a god, right? They saw him that way, um, but ultimately Clue wins. He uh, betrays Flynn. He destroys the ISOs. Um, so that Flynn can't study them anymore because they represent imperfection, right? So that's really the the core driving force of, of Clue. And one of the things I like about this movie, especially for watching it with younger kids, which I've done many times, is that the character motivations are always very clear, right? Like you know why the characters are doing what they're doing. Clue wants perfection in the system, and he feels like, Whereas Flynn at one time felt that the solutions to life were in the computer, Clue, as his opposite, as his doppelganger, now feels that their future is outside of the computer. Right? Their future is out there rather than in here. So they're, they're really nicely paralleled, really nicely divided with each other. And there's even a scene later in the movie where we see the creation of Clue and it's literally a mirror image, right? So he has all of the same flaws of Kevin Flynn in terms of his personality and what he wants. He's a frozen picture of time of who Flynn was, right? That searching, that I can figure it out, Again, I know where we're going. Again, the concept of legacy. Legacy, exactly. Um, whereas this Flynn, you know, the real Flynn has grown, his opinions have changed, he understands the world differently now, that Clue is frozen. You know, Clue, has, as the young Flynn, is frozen in time. And so there's a coup. Clue believes that his job is still to create the perfect system. The ISOs represent a threat to that, so he kills them. He tries to hunt Flynn down. Flynn escapes and, and has been on the run ever since. And Korra is the last ISO. Right, she was that's what's eventually realized. Right, she was, she's a rescue, which again touches upon uh, Sam, who has a dog named Marvin, who is rescue. That's where the concept gets introduced. Lots of nice script parallels. Um, and then Sam has his first real conflict with his dad because he wants him to leave. Let's just get out of here because 
the portal that allows them to go back to the real world has a limited time frame to, to remain open. And ultimately, if they don't get to it in time, Sam will also be trapped inside the computer with his father forever uh, or until somebody else discovers the computer and lets him out, I guess. Uh, so Sam is not okay with this. He uh, steals his dad's light cycle and he goes to meet another new character introduced late in the film. I, I honestly would have liked to have seen a couple of scenes of this character doing what he does beforehand just to sort of seed him. Like even if he's background, he's announcing at the games something I would have liked to, even if he was never named or called out, I would have liked to see him earlier and then come back. But that's a, a minor quibble. Uh, but basically Sam is directed by Cora, who has history with this character to the end of line club uh which again if you know anything about the first original tron uh one of the things that the master control program always said when ending a conversation was end, end of, of line. line uh which again is an old computer programmer thing mm -hmm. right you've ended the line you've ended the the instruction so i'm finished uh so he goes to the end of line club and he meets and a lot of reviewers i remember watching one not too long ago uh said that this is where the film finally had a bit of life in it, um, which I would agree. I think it's had plenty of life up until this point, but it definitely comes roaring to life here with a, another fantastic scene-chewing performance by Michael Sheen. Um, we talked about him a little bit in the Twilight episode because he eventually shows up in those films and his chews scenery. Laugh, like, his yeah. goofy laugh in whichever movie that was was the only reason to watch it. As, as it's it. Like the one that he is in, you should watch it and you'll know when the moment hits. <laughs> That's right. Goofy Laugh Michael Sheen is always good. So he's introduced as a, a character, uh, originally we know him as Caster, uh, which I presume is a mythological reference. Mm -hmm. And um, then we find out that he is actually Zeus, who in the past times inside the grid has been a, a kind of aid to the ISOs. He helped some of them try to escape initially. Um, and so Cora sends him to Zeus, sends Sam to Zeus for help, right? A way to get him out of the system. Because Sam's decided that he's just going to leave, go through, you know, he, you know uh, he doesn't have a beef with Clue, or he doesn't think he does. So he's just going to try and leave and then delete Clue from the real world, right? Just go into the operating system and literally delete the Clue program. Uh, which, again, is awesome that people understand how that stuff works in the movie. Um and, and she believes that Zeus can help, right? And so Michael Sheen is looks like a lit-up David Bowie on a, a good uh, Ziggy Stardust stage show. And, and he just eats scenery. He's having fun. He's got this lit-up cane that's really cool. The we get a Stephen Lisberger cameo. And we actually get a, a cameo from Daft Punk themselves. They're, mm -hmm. they're the DJs inside the End of Line Club. And so they're actually there dropping tracks. And, and the music in this sequence is especially good. Uh, so Zeus says he's going to help Sam, uh, and very quickly we realize that he has actually betrayed him and that he's in league with Clue. Clue gets contacted, Clue shows up, we get a great action sequence where uh, Clue's guards attack. Uh, they kind of come in on these, uh, I guess, moth wings almost, like they fly down, attack. There are a bunch of people there who are members of a resistance, which is not really mentioned much in the film, but there is this idea seeded that there are programs inside the system who want to resist Clue, who believe in the users. Uh, we get a couple of references to that in this sequence. And there's a really cool action sequence. Um, some of the, the stunt work's a little iffy, uh, but it, it looks cool because everything looks cool in this world. And then Zeus turns on them and, and betrays them, presumably to, uh, to gain Clue's favor. 
And then it doesn't work. <laughs> and it doesn't work, right? But they do acquire Flynn's disc, right, at the end of it. And uh, Sam and Flynn and Cora. Cora gets injured pretty badly uh, in the fight. She gets and, her arm uh, chopped off. And then we get a, a Solar Sailor reference. So one of the, the key computer graphic scenes in the original Tron was a Solar Sailor. Basically, they get on it, and it's this nice, you know, sort of... It was pretty impressive 3D graphics for the time, but it's a, a sort of vehicle that flares these sails out and then it grabs, um, you know, digital wind, if you want to call it that, data, and then it, it travels that way. So they get on one of those, a kind of train, to try and make it to the portal before Clue can catch them, uh, even though Clue has Flynn's disc, right? They're just like, maybe we can make it out before him and it'll be fine, because we've, we've discovered now that that's Clue's plan. So... The ISOs are evidence that the digital representations of humans inside the computer are close enough to us that given the right technology and the right access, they could leave the computer and be built in our world. Which again is another very big science, you know, it's a very, very big science fiction leap. You have to be willing to go along with the idea. But so we find out that Clue's plan, like his goal, is to get Flynn's disc, which he sees as kind of a key to the system, and then use that to escape. Right. And to quite literally it be, should work because they and it are should the work. same. Right. They're they're he's a digital version of the human Kevin Flynn. And if he can get out of the system, presumably he can take the army that he has been building by appropriating programs, by turning them into his soldiers to take them out into the digital world as well, into the real world as well, and then begin the same march towards perfection that he has executed inside the computer, which Flynn tells us very clearly that that is a doomsday scenario, right? He will, he will ruin the world that we live in, uh, which is why he has chosen to not fight him and has, has tried to avoid him for all this time. The only way to win is not to play. Right, that's the the phrase, you know. Um, so they escape briefly. Uh, Clue acquires the disc from Zeus and betrays him, kills Zeus and and uh, his associates. And then we get a, another one of my favorite scenes. I love I love the big action set pieces in this film, but honestly, it's some of the quiet scenes with Jeff Bridges that I think are the most memorable and powerful. And so as they're traveling on the solar sailor, we get a brief moment of, of rest. Cora, they repair her by literally dipping into her digital DNA, getting rid of the bad code that made her arm disappear and fixing it, right? Which again sort of ties into this idea that Jeff Bridges was looking to heal disease, to, to change the way we repair ourselves by using this digital information. And then we get a great scene where they kind of catch up, right? They, they actually talk for the first time. Oh, and let's talk for a minute about Jeff Bridges' outfit. Holy crap. It's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> he, like, he, looks, he looks like a digital Jedi. Yeah, and he's like and a... And I know that was the purpose. I'm so on board for it, man. Like, he's got the folded over, you know, sort of Japanese-style long robe. He and, and then he's wearing this long coat jacket that has the strip of LED lights right inside. The, the, the He's wearing the, collar. the, the collarless... Shirt that sort of evokes, you know, religious garb. It's just, it's so it, cool. <laughs> it's so cool, dude. And and in that big action sequence in the end of Lion Club, like he shows up and sort of shuts everything down, and it the music's great. I I and he just love he swishes he around works. and looks awesome. Like if I had yeah, a robe it, like that, I would, I would, 
I would swish also. I don't. It would be the only it. the only thing that I ever wore uh, easily. <laughs> but so we, we get a really great scene, like the first real father and son scene. They talk about motorcycles. He, he asks about his parents, which I thought was really good. Like what happened to grandma and grandpa. And, you know, he just sort of catches up. Uh, we get this great joke about him coming up with uh, Wi-Fi like years before it happened. And then he never got the chance to execute he's, on it. He's like, I came up with that in 86 or something. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, I, I thought of that in 87, you know, but he got stuck in the computer. And then we really move into the end game. So, uh, you know, we don't have to spend a ton of time here. But basically, we uh, they they get diverted as they're traveling on the solar sailor. And they find out that they've actually been riding on a train that is carrying decommissioned programs that are going to be used for Clue's army. And he's built a station right outside the, the exit portal where he's been housing all this stuff and, and basically getting ready for an invasion, if you will. And um, so it's, it's, again, it's a doomsday scenario. It's very epic in scale. Uh, all of the, the, the backgrounds and everything, it's, it's gorgeous. There's tons of stuff going on. And, and then uh, Korra makes the decision. We, we get another call back to removing herself from the equation, trying to change the scenario. She decides that she's going to distract Clue's forces so that they can escape. And uh, so she basically gives herself over to Rensler, who gets another awesome couple of like cool flips and jumps and stuff. And the film is um, really good at building up the mystery of Rinsler in a very kind of subtle way. Um, yeah. Because we haven't really talked about We haven't. Him. Um, <laughs> no, because uh, we get a little clue in, in the coup scene when yeah. Clue is... is um, is is turning on Flynn. Tron is is with him and and defends him so he can escape. And we get a really cool sequence where Tron is kind of you know taking down bunches of guys. He picks up a second disc and <laughs> uses both at the same time. And and it's in this scene that it's revealed to us by Jeff Bridges, who recognizes him instantly, that Rinsler is actually Tron. That Clue has corrupted Tron. He has broken his programming in some way and is now using him as his primary enforcer. Now, I don't know so, if this happened to you in the theater, but the first time Rinsler said user, I was like, that yeah. is Bruce Boxleitner. It's and Bruce that Boxleitner. is Tron. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> yep. No, it absolutely happens. Uh, it was actually the the T, right? Because if you look at Rinsler's costume, he has a, a T shape right underneath mm -hmm. his neck. And in the original Tron, that was the kind of unique center symbol on the Tron costume. And and if you pay close attention to the Tron, you know, the, the digitally DH Bruce, Bruce Boxleitner Tron in the, the flashback sequences, um, you can see that same design. So, I mean, they're not hiding it. I've actually, uh, well, the, the Red Letter Media video I mentioned, um, they suspected that this was some kind of late reveal. Like, they didn't intend Rensler to be Tron. Um, and they just kind of solved that later. I don't think that's true, um, at least not to me. I, I certainly can see the complaint that the Rinsler slash Tron reveal is is not executed as cleanly as it could be. You know, there there could be more initial initial clues. But it was um, also a relatively small component of this story. I mean, we weren't really right. concerned about what happened to Tron so much. Right. Because that's, that's the thing, and they may have been intentionally trying to avoid this. Once Jeff Bridges enters the computer world, Tron becomes the main character of the film. 
Yeah. Right. Like he, like Jeff Bridges is the entry point, but then it really becomes about Tron's struggle to free the system. And Jeff Bridges is just kind of along for the ride. Um, and, and I, I, I think they were intentionally trying to make sure that didn't happen with this film, that Tron needed to be a sidelined character so that they could build Sam as the hero. Um, so it feels kind of more intentional. We also needed to know what happened to him because we that is a question once they show you that little flashback of what mm-hmm. exactly where, where did he go? Right. The movie is still, I mean, and the problem is the movie is still called Tron. <laughs> <laughs> so so you kind of have to have Tron, right? Like Tron <laughs> is the brand, but Tron is also a character in these films. Um, so I kind of, and I thought they could have solved it very simply. Like all I would have wanted to see is, you know, Alan in in the, like even in the corporate scene you know, somebody be like, Alan, we can't make money off your Tron security program or something like that, right? Like where like Alan has still been building Tron as a thing. And that's like his specialty because Tron was supposed to be security software basically, yeah. right? It was it was something to gauge what a computer was doing and shut down things that it saw as problematic, which made sense because when you, you go into the system and meet Tron, he's, he's strong and powerful and and other programs respect him and listen to what he has to say and and follow him you know like and he's very much like the emblem of goodness in both of the films and that that echoes who alan is in person exactly that he's like no we should do this by the book we should do we should follow the rules we should make sure we have a system in place like he's he was very much that you know rigid do the right thing straight laced guy um, yeah. And that was, you know, that's in direct contrast to to Kevin Flynn, who was the dude. <laughs> yeah, he's the loosey goosey. Hey, man, let's just do some stuff. Right? That is a big um, door. Yeah. <laughs> so then we get this nice, again, parallel script writing. Very, very classic technique. We, we saw this speech at the beginning of young, real Jeff Bridges saying that the future was inside the computer. You know, this big, you know screaming crowds you know it's in there you know we get a parallel to that with clue where clue says our future is out there right that's where we're going to find and it's it's meant to to evoke that and and there's this great you know little expression from jeff bridges during this sequence where he like he sees himself in clue and he sees where he got it wrong and where he was wrong when he set clue on his mission to create the perfect system and then another big fun reveal for Tron fans, uh, Clue has rebuilt Sark's battleship mm-hmm. from the original film, right? That is his his vessel that he's going to use to take his armies to the real world. Uh, which again, we could address, you know, is, is is the little digitizer in Kevin Flynn's basement going to digitize this, you know, battle cruiser into existence? We don't know. Again, it's science fiction. If you want to take it that seriously... I guess go ahead. But maybe don't but, watch science fiction films. Yeah, like <laughs> if that's you're what you're going to do, you're not going to have a good time. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be like, well, how did Iron Man really get those repulsors in his boots? It's like, well, just, you know, calm down. It's a movie. But anyway. But so, I, again, it's a, it's a plot point that we could discuss as being ridiculous. But uh, so Sam has to go get the disc so they can't escape. He he steals it. We get a nice little parallel to his base jump as he, you know, rescues Korra and, and jumps off the the ledge of where the the disc is the ship that uh, clue has it in um let me just say that really these scenes and the scene inside of flynn's kind of apartment that's that's all lit 
the digital de-aging on Jeff Bridges looks fantastic. Yeah. Like it is, it is near perfect. Um, and it all has to do with lighting. Every single bit of it has to do with lighting. The facial structure is the same. The 3d model is the same, but the lighting choices made in those scenes, I completely buy the face. It looks fine. It's, it's mostly just, you know, in some of those other scenarios, the lighting just did not work with the face, but they look great in it, those sequences. It feels like real world lighting was what made it, what pushed it into Uncanny Valley. But when you mm -hmm. have the, the fantasy environment of the grid, you can play with how a character is lit. You don't have to obey the, the scene rules. and the actual light that is being placed inside, you know, this physical space. Absolutely. And it, so, I mean, I think the, the de-aging is, is actually better later in the movie than it is at the beginning, uh, which is generally contrary because you're in your beginning movie shots usually have more time to work on them. So you're generally going to get better stuff. Um, but that doesn't feel that way here. Um, so we're, we're progressing to the end. Jeff Bridges has a couple of really funny moments here. Where he's like reprogramming stuff on the fly and he's like hitting them on the head to make them reset and stuff. It's just, it's cute. Um, and Bridges just sells it because he's great. Uh, so they hijack a plane because that sets up our last action sequence and they escape with Flynn's disc in tow, ruining Clue's plans. So they've rescued Korra. They're good. But of course, Clue's not going to let it go. So he and Rinsler and some other people start following him in the light jet. So this time we see a plane that actually gets the trails behind it and we get an awesome sequence of them uh, fighting each other. And uh, I don't know. I love the light jet sequence. It's so fun. And we get our little Star Wars dogfight moment. It's a little Star Wars dogfight. Exactly. There's a lot of parallels to Star Wars here. Again, you can feel them doing big franchise, you know, filmmaking stuff. Sam gets a little bit of a fight with Rinsler beforehand and, and kind of gets one up on him. Not exactly, but just a little bit. Mostly because he uses another disc to, to knock him out, uh, which he's not expecting. And uh, I thought that was fun. But anyway, uh, so the light jet sequence begins. And one of the things I will say that could have been better is they try to give Sam some like one-liners in the movie. Yeah. Um, and, and they're not great. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of the, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, I can do this. You know, it's it's like those kind of things. And I, it, I really feel like... It was very Will Smith a la Independence Day. Yeah, just, just real like 90s, you know, action lines. And they just don't fit. And they don't really do anything to build him as a character. Um, whereas I feel like there's opportunity there for them to have done a bit more with him. And when we get a couple of these in the light jet sequence as he's manning the, the tail gun or whatever. But really, the last scene, the only thing that matters to me is they, they sort of defeat everybody. The last person is Rinsler. Rinsler comes in for the kill. He makes eye contact with Jeff Bridges. With Jeff Bridges. He sees Kevin Flynn for the first time in who knows how long, and he becomes conflicted. And his conflict is... Even though this dude is wearing like a huge black helmet and he is not, his face is not visible. You can render no emotion from him other than, you know, some body movements. Uh, you can see his conflict. We get a little bit of voiceover from Bruce Boxleitner remembering stuff from the past. And, and then he gives like the line where he says, I fight, I for, fight the users. for the user. Oh, and dude, I just, <laughs> I lost my I, shit in the theater. I, I, I just really straight up. I just melt 
I melt every time. I like I get a little weepy. It's like cause Trump fights for the users. That's what he does. I and it's just it's just I distinctly remember I was holding my husband's hand because we hold hands at the movies, that's who we are. Um and when he said that, I just squeezed the ever loving crap out of my husband's hand it's and he such started a good laughing, moment. like, oh wow. Yeah. And I'm like, it's drawn. It's it's such a good moment, and he uh, interferes with Clue and and ends up crashing and going down into the the sea of simulation is what it's called, right? Which is is another reference to the first one. Uh, it's again unformed space, but it's he collapses into that, and we actually see Tron switch, right? He, he goes from from being red, he reboots, right? Which could have been the title of this movie. I'm glad it wasn't. My God, that would have been so bad. Yeah. But uh, Tron reboot. Uh, but he reboots and comes back as his blue self, and we see him in, you know, come to life, if you will. So, very cool scene. I mean, as, you kind of have to be a Tron fan to care, I guess. But even even not, like, just the, the way that Bridges sells it, because it's it's done in this this uh, sort of swoop around, this this almost 180 shot as it's it's meant to be like him circling the plane in his own plane. And he makes contact. It's gorgeous cool camera move and bridges just sells it yeah you don't really need the the uh computerized bruce boxleitner because jeff bridges does all the acting in that he does all the work yeah and then you just get the voiceover from boxleitner after that but so that brings us to our our sort of final moment of the film or or nearly where kevin flynn and again i I don't understand why people say this movie has no emotional heft Uh, i will say that it's not maybe obvious but he literally has to face his younger self. He faces down the man that he used to be and, and he, all of the wrong ways that he saw the world. And he doesn't right? destroy it. He integrates it. Right. That's he accepts the most that that's who thing. he was. Yeah. Because we I mean, don't destroy mm. who we used to be. We accept it and we integrate it. Right. And he had been running from that, right? Like the Kevin Flynn of the system had been avoiding the acknowledgement that the clue that destroyed this world that he tried to build was himself, right? It wasn't some, some horror that, you know, he'd never known. It was literally the wrong headed ways that he had seen the world when he started this process. Right. And, you know, as a, as an aging, you know, young man, myself, uh, I'm not really young anymore, but as an aging man, myself, like there is, there is a significant, weight to someone that is forced to contemplate their existence and who they've been well this is hopefully something that we all do as people we reach a point where we integrate the mistakes of our past and learn from them right and it's it's literally happening in front of him right and this scene again is shot brilliantly well this is probably the most uh it is a set i mean they they built sets and stuff but there's a lot of digital you know replacement and background stuff going on here but it's it's windy right and and like the hair looks amazing especially on the de-aged jeff bridges like i i i'm shocked at the fidelity of it now apparently the the body double actor that played him they they styled his hair very similarly and and stuff so it's probably a lot of his real hair at the time but god it just looks good it just looks really good in this sequence and so, um, you know, Clue confronts Kevin Flynn, you know, he's like, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is who I'm supposed to be. You know, I'm supposed to create this perfect system. You know, Flynn in this moment realizes that 
you know, if he doesn't do something, this is over. Like Clue's going to win. But he, uh, they trick Clue by giving him, uh, was it, did they give him Sam's disc? I don't even remember. I guess I so. believe so, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's But it's not the disc he's expecting. Like they give him a disc, but it's the wrong disc. And Clue figures it out before they can escape. There's some and suggestion that the disc is worth more because it belongs to Flynn, that it possibly contains information. That's... Right, the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. You know, what everyone think of it. Because it's not just that he needs a data disc. He needs, he needs uh, Kevin's data disc. To, to unlock the system. And now Flynn has given that to Sam so that Sam can escape. And there's this awesome moment where Clue's like, why? You know, like, oh, it's Cora's disc. That's what it is. Yeah. It's Cora's disc. Yeah. And he's like, why? Why would you Why would you do this for him? And Dershus is like, he's my son. And, you know, it's just this, this powerful moment where he looks at his past self and is like this self-absorbed young man who was not there for his own kid and what Clue represents of that. And then is like, you know, I have to because he's my son, right? You know, he's not he's not me you know i'm not obsessed in that way with myself anymore and making myself satisfied like it's about another person so there's so much going on emotionally in the scene and it's it's acted really well headland has a lot to to do in it as they're getting ready to escape but then we get this reintegration scene where flynn the only way to protect them from clue and the only way to, to stop clue to stop Clue is is to reconcile the two halves, which Cora, you know, again tells us earlier that the 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 reclamation process as he reabsorbs Clue will kill them both. Right? They can't be together again. That's not possible anymore. So we get a, a great reference to the original Tron. They get back in like the the giant beam of light that's going to take them to the the user. He raises the disc to grant access and, Look at and he that escapes. movie cover shot. That movie cover oh. shot, man, because it, it's really it's I mean, it's in the movie, but it, it was the iconic shot from the, the poster that everybody mm -hmm. recognized. And they kind of bring that in. And so he reintegrates. It's awesome. Again, there's there's some some speed ratcheting that Kaczynski chooses to do during the reintegration process. It, I, again, this whole scene works. It's just awesome. Um, from the beginning slow to end. motion shift to to Jeff Bridges actually it's pulling so Clue in is probably one of the most badass things I've ever seen. It's so good, dude. It's like, I, usually slow motion is kind of cheesy for me unless it's done right. really well. This is it's done, gotta be done really well. well. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's like the, the speed that they actually pulled it at or what, but it just, it, I mean, he's standing in front of a wind machine, so it's like his whole face is being sort of rocked back and forth. And then he's got all cool. of this, you know, bloomed light that's all over his face and it's just it's so it looks so cool it's so visually exciting it just looks great and and so he reintegrates it blows everything up right this whole like space that uh clue had built to to launch his army all of it gets wiped out the, the ship gets wiped out every it's like a hard system reset basically like it's it's resetting the grid back to to zero in essence because uh, Flynn is, is no longer there, right? He's taken himself out of the system. There is a nice, I mean, again, there, there's so much setting this up for a franchise because Sam, like, copies something onto, a, in essence, a USB flash drive and hangs yeah. around his neck. He and it's heavily implied that, and it's, I, I, to me, it also heavily implied that he backed up his dad. 
<laughs> like whatever was left so. of Flynn in that system, <laughs> he backed him up. And so I, to me, it felt like in future films, we could have a kind of digital Jeff Bridges, right? Like not a real one, but one that could live inside the system and serve as a, as a you know, guide kind for Sam like, and his future uh, efforts. There were some characters in the original film, some of the older programs mm-hmm. that were yeah, almost like sage-like. Like, yeah, Dumont was, was one of them. These almost sage-like characters that, that existed sort of in between the conflict of the protagonist and antagonist, which right. could be cool. Yeah, it was it was a neat idea. I mean, it seemed like they were doing that anyway. It's hard to say. Uh, so Sam gets out, right? And he escapes and he meets Alan. He tells Alan that he's ready to take over the company now. So again, he's ready to embrace his legacy. <laughs> um, and And he tells Alan that he's now in charge of the company. Right. He's going to run it. He's not going to be subservient to anybody anymore. And uh, that he was right from the, the beginning. Right? That he had, uh, his suspicions were accurate. So he turns Flynn's sign back on. The sun is rising. So all of this has happened in a single night, right? which again parallels the original film. Uh, he has this grand adventure. It takes place in a couple of hours. And the exact same thing has happened for Sam. But then we get the reveal that uh, not only has Sam escaped the grid, but so has Korra. Flynn's belief that the isomorphic algorithms could be brought into the real world and exist as humans for all intents and purposes was accurate. Uh, so Sam takes her on a bike ride on his sweet Ducati. And she's so sweet and, and wonderful. Yeah, she Olivia Wilde. She the, the wide-eyed. <laughs> she's great in this. The wide-eyed ingenue, right? Like, she just nails it in this. I love Olivia Wilde. I think she's an incredibly underrated actress. She's done some really great stuff. Book, uh, Booksmart came out. Last year, I guess, uh, that she directed, super great, like just a fantastic film. Uh, she's she's an incredible filmmaker and, and actor and director, and I, 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 I just can't wait to see what she does next because she's really good. And she's really good in this. She brings a lot. I mean, this could be a throwaway character. So many of these characters could be throwaway characters. She, she could does have a just tremendous been the love interest, and instead yeah. she was more than that. It certainly feels that way to me. But so he takes her on a bike ride and shows her her first real sunrise right she sees the sun for the first time and it's it's just a a great lovely simple ending right you know they don't introduce world ending stakes you know there's no little stinger for you know what's coming next it's just these people are now i know they didn't want to to be anything like the matrix but it does have one of those first matrix movie endings where it doesn't Mm -hmm. end with things being drawn to a close, but more things being opened up to a whole new world of possibility. Right. And I I secretly adore movies that end that way. Because I want to walk yeah. out of a theater feeling like, oh, the next one is going to be amazing. Right. Um, which, that is, that's how I felt when I left the theater after Tron Legacy. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, it felt a lot like the first Iron Man for me. Like I, I had the same level of enthusiasm when I left. Like, oh man, we're gonna we're gonna do some cool stuff with this, uh, which they didn't necessarily, but <laughs> I sure felt like they were going to. Um, at least not Iron Man two, but that's another discussion. Uh, but yeah, no, I I left. I was completely satisfied by this movie. Uh, every every moment of it. I never for a question. I never you know, was like, oh, that wasn't so good. Like I, I loved everything about it, um, and. You know, it, it's a whole, 
it really is uh, the whole package, right? It feels designed to be the whole package and it actually executes on being the whole package. It has action, has a little bit of romance, very minimal, again, because I think it's, it's more building that relationship rather than focusing on it. It's got really strong relationships between the central characters. It's got some interesting thematic elements that, that sort of run through it in terms of legacy, accepting who you are, becoming who you are. I mean, these, these large, simple themes. You don't but see themes that in that, science fiction a lot. No. Uh, and we definitely don't see it in, in science fiction on this sort of blockbuster style scale. Yeah. Right? Like nobody, those aren't the themes that you pick for your blockbuster film, right? Um, you know, the smaller films in the MCU, um, well, I say small, but let's let's say like one of the few that has done something with a theme like that is Guardians of the Galaxy 2, um, which deals very much with fathers and sons yeah, uh, and executes on that theme very well, in my opinion. So I don't want to make it seem like you can't hang your franchise hat, but that was the second film in the franchise that and focused on those things after the characters had been established. It didn't try to tell that story right out of the gate. For and me, I, you could argue that this is the second. I, I will say that before I, I let you go. But you could argue that this is the second film in the franchise. But for ostensibly, this is the first movie that anybody's going to see. Right. Yeah. Because uh, I don't know. But go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 comparison. That father-son story didn't work for me. Oh, really? No, yeah. it didn't at all. <clears throat> um, the, uh, the, the Yondu it was overwrought for me. <laughs> oh sure, like the Kurt Russell stuff. The the Kurt Russell stuff, I think, uh, it, it serves as a nice backbone to to give your third act villain some juice. But it was really more the the realization between you know Peter and Yondu, like yeah. recognizing the relationship they had. That I think works pretty well in the movie. Like it executes well. It it hits for me, um, but. This, I think, as a father-son story, works on an entirely different level because it's about growth yeah. uh, between them. It's not the realization of what you had. It's it's discovering something that you always wanted. And and that's a, coming at it from a different angle. Um, but it, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's, I, it's why I said from the beginning I was going to gush about this movie because <laughs> I love it. And I think it's really cool. And I'm so angry that we haven't had like four more of these freaking things. Um but the problem is that it, it doesn't seem like people in the world at large really can glom onto and grab onto Tron. And and so let's let's talk a little bit as we, we sort of you know begin to shut this down. Why not? Right? So what is it about these films, right? What could be changed or or what is it that's holding them back? Because at this point we've taken two swings, granted 30 years apart, so I don't know how connected those two swings are but we've taken two swings at getting people excited about the world of tron and both of them were big old misses so what what is it what do you think i feel like disney has never done a good job explaining these films and what they are supposed to represent and how people are supposed to watch them um mm. they're not advert they were never advertised very well um no no I, yeah the marketing campaigns for all of them were pretty terrible and it's it again them being so far apart 
it feels like for Tron Legacy, you would have to take a lot of time building it back up and, you know, building up the, the Tron fan base. And there was a, a sort of missed opportunity in getting people to look back at Tron and then get excited about the release of this film. Um, it seems like it just came out. <laughs> and it was like, oh, it's here and, and we'll go see it now. Uh, but I don't remember them building a lot of hype for it, which probably would have helped sell this to people a little bit better. Right. Uh, I think I think they did everything right in terms of making it a very accessible, very straightforward adventure story. Right. Like, I think they tried to take a, a fantastic concept grounded in very sort of understandable situations. But that may have had the unfortunate side effect of making it feel more generic than it really is. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it needed a bit more of that uniqueness, a little bit more weird to, to, to sell it. You know, because at the end of the day, this, this feels like other movies you've seen before in terms of what happens to its characters. It's not, but you could misconstrue it as that very easily right um i also i mean i guess we can go ahead and get into the the one thing territory here the one thing i would change and it and it's going to sound terrible because i don't really feel like he does a bad job but i don't think that garrett headland was the right choice to lead this movie um, um he was a bit fresh just a bit he hadn't <laughs> he hadn't done a lot um i think there's a lot of emotional weight placed on his shoulders in addition to just the standard weight of being like the action lead, you know, the one-liners, you know, all that stuff. I think there was a lot of weight placed on his shoulders, and I don't know if he was able to get there as much as he possibly could have. Especially when you're standing next to Jeff Bridges, which yes. admittedly, he anybody's going to struggle. He just, yeah, he anybody's going to struggle. And so... You know, I, I've i liked Garrett Hedlund some stuff, Lost City of Z. Uh, I didn't even, I even kind of liked uh, him in Pan, uh, which Pan is its own problematic movie. We might talk about that one someday. Um, but he plays Captain Hook in that one, and he's got this weird accent. Like, it's very, it's all over the place. But I still kind of like him, because I, I like him. He's likable. He's but also got I, a purdy voice. He's, he's, you know... He's an attractive dude. I mean, I he has the look. There's no doubt about that. But I wonder if maybe, uh, you know, another fresh-faced, you know, actor might have been able to step into this and, and do a slightly better job. Um, so that would have been my my one potential thing, right? Like, because uh, unfortunately in Hollywood, there is some truth to the fact that, you know, your, your leads are going to get your butts in the seats. And, and there wasn't really anybody to hang that on in this movie. Olivia Wilde a little bit, but even again in 2010, she's not a huge star at that point. Um, relative, I mean, relative unknown, quote unquote. And so I, I really think maybe that would have been a thing to push it over and maybe a little bit more leaning into a little bit more of the weirdness in the story and not making it this sort of very traditional action tale. Um, could have done something for it too, but... That's Disney's tendency is yeah, and, to make and it as, that's, as washed as you can. <laughs> that's a blockbuster, you know, safe filmmaking, right? You have to make it as palatable as possible to the most people. That's why Marvel is succeeding now is because they've, they've found the formula that works for them. But there's, I will say, the Marvel movies that work best for me, they got a little bit of weird in them. 
just a little bit. Yeah. Right. Just some stuff where you go, oh, that's that's a little goofy. Right. Kind of like we were talking about with Umbrella Academy, where it leans hardcore into the weird, but it's like, yes, this is great. This movie could have maybe used a bit more of that too. I don't know. So how about you? What do you think? Um, what might have what might have propelled this beyond the, the the marketing component? But I think you're absolutely right about that. This is. I don't know if I necessarily again. I don't think I feel this way, but I think in terms of how to make this a more palatable film, it is a bit long. Um, a bit. Yeah. It's it's two hours, and for for a follow up to a film that was very brisk. I mean, that was when Disney yeah, it's was like eighty six minutes or something. Films. Yeah. Um. I think that they might have been able to abbreviate some parts and maybe, you know, do less about the ISOs or couch that differently. Maybe not spent as much time fleshing all of that out and focused a bit more just on Kevin Flynn. I mean, that because he that, that was really what people wanted to see. I think that uh, Jeff Bridges is an actor that people enjoy watching hmm. and maybe making it a little bit more brisk of a story could have helped that. But again, sure. I don't personally feel like anything is no, out of place. No, I, this movie could have been a half hour longer for me and yeah. I'd have been fine. Um, you know, and, and there is some cut footage, you know, running around. There's some, you know, deleted scenes and stuff that, that's, you know, I think could have been re-included. Uh, I, I, you know, I know we're, we've had multiple one things at this point, so that kind of defeats the purpose. But I, I also think we could have spent more time in the real world, yeah. right? The, we spend a lot of time in the real world in the original Tron. As, as brisk as it is, it's like 96 minutes. So that means it's like 90 minutes without credits. Um, we still spend a huge chunk in the real world before we get digitized. There's a lot ahead. of building. And, and it, I think they could have done that here. And it keeps those action sequences that can get a little overwhelming and can, I think, make people feel that the film is cold because that visual style of the grid, it's, because yeah. that's all we saw, yeah. that really contributed, I think, to the look that people didn't like. For sure. Um, you know, but in, in terms of a, a working film, it's got characters you can hang your hat on, right? Even if you don't like Sam that much, you've got Cora. If you don't like either of them, you've still got Kevin Flynn with Jeff Bridges. Um, you know, it's got good characterization. The script is incredibly well designed. I mean, it even feels kind of designed because everything, everything that does happen in those 20, 25 minutes before we get to the grid, all of it is paid off in the film later. Right from the rescue of the dog to you know maybe Kevin Flynn's just been sitting there waiting for you to come find him this whole time, to you know Flynn's arcade and the the setup of the games like all of that stuff shows up in the script later and and has a payoff in ways that in in terms of traditional screenwriting you absolutely want yeah. right those are the pieces that make a film successful because everything is earned everything is there for you to grab and say oh that makes sense because i saw this and that was explained here so i get this so the script is incredibly well put together and and, and satisfying as a result right everything feels good uh in terms of that we we've hit production design but i mean again We've said it before, I'll say it again. If you go to movies to see things you've never seen before, this film, it will give you that in spades. 
yeah. Kaczynski is an incredible visual stylist and everything feels designed. Everything has weight. Everything has a realistic geometry to it, even though you're in this fantastic place. It's, There's it's consistency gorgeous. to his look. Yes, gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, which again, if you want to see more of that kind of thing, Oblivion is a great choice with Tom Cruise. Uh, it's, it's just great. It's a great looking stuff. The music is killer. Like it, I will listen to the soundtrack just as a Daft Punk CD. Like it, it's just a Daft Punk album at yeah. this point, and it's I've, awesome. I'm, well, you know about me and Daft Punk. Yeah, we go we, way back. Way back, right? One more time. Uh, so, I mean, as we close this out, you know, we could we'll give our failure piece scores. I, I have a sneaking suspicion. I know what yours can be. <laughs> probably do mine too, um, but. These are huge recommendations. Uh, if you've never seen Tron, if you you didn't see it when it came out, you know the marketing didn't work for you, or it just kind of escaped your your purview. Uh, Tron Legacy is is just a great action movie. Also, it's beautiful. if you if it's you good. like modern Disney films, uh, was it John Lasseter who cited Tron as one of mm -hmm. his major inspirations? Yeah, Tron apparently he had some consulting that he did on this. Uh, at the time because uh, because you know when they were establishing visual style pixar of course is, is still kind of disney's in-house visual style guys um and apparently they did do some consulting on this but that's uh, a that's a big endorsement for the original tron for me oh yeah oh i'm talking about the original yes yeah, no lassiter like, is often cited the original tron as a visual inspiration for what they do they've done in computer graphics and the arm that created tron is a bunch of those dudes were the guys that founded Pixar. Like that's where they came from was doing the graphics for Tron. I want to say, and I could be wrong about that, but I want to say Ed Catmull, who's like one of the founding Pixar guys was one of the dudes who worked on Tron. Um, so, I mean, just hugely influential in terms of the franchise, but this film also, I think is just, mm, mm, like, you know, finger emoji where you're you're just like oh, oh. like it's just it is gorgeous. chef's kiss <laughs> it's she, yeah, it's the chef's kiss emoji man it's like jeez it's so good um so this is a 100 for me i i i recommend this movie wholeheartedly it is if there are any if there's anything disastrous about it all it does is contribute to making it even more amazing uh tron legacy is one of my favorite films of all time I, I, every time it's on i watch it to its full completion i can't help it so. similarly my score is 100 i i can't i can't not love this movie i feel that it yeah. it is maligned in the same way that tron was maligned mm -hmm. um and it has to survive on that cult following uh like so many movies that i love but it's worth it's worth seeing. It's worth seeing if you just want to immerse yourself in in an aesthetic that mm -hmm. is very very sexy. Like it's just sexy looking. The grid is just a really cool, well designed environment. And even if you don't really get into the story itself, it's worth it just to see the film. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, one hundred for me. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's. Uh, I said it at the beginning and I, I meant it like I, I love this movie uh, it, it was a great film going experience in the theater like it was wonderful to see it again this is one of the very few movies that I actually I feel like the fact that 3D has died on the vine and nobody really has it anymore this is a movie where the 3D actually was great 
and and I would love to be able to watch it in 3D again. I don't have any. I don't have a 3D TV, um, so I can't. I do. But <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. You can come but over this and is, watch it. <laughs> but this is one movie where the 3D actually is badass. Like it is super well done, uh, which makes absolute sense given Kaczynski's attention to detail and and his desire to you know create a specific visual effect. I mean, I, I'll say it again. The man is. He's he's the closest thing to a, another David Fincher that we've got, but he's just a he takes very different projects from what David Fincher does, and he's uh, more and he's of willing. a people's director. David Fincher I, is is an auteur. <laughs> he's gone out, yeah. I mean, he definitely is a different class. But in terms of visual stylist, uh, you know, category for me, Kaczynski is up there. Like he yeah. is up there, uh, and and I feel like he's capable of, of realizing worlds in ways that a lot of other directors can't. Uh, and Tron Legacy is evidence of that, hands down. All right, well let's let's wrap this thing up. We've we've talked for a long time again because <laughs> awesome. Um, so where can you be found on social media, Kate? Um, you can find me at Baskinator on Twitter and the Baskinator on Instagram, and I have my own website. It's CatherineBaskin.com with links to all of my stuff. Awesome. Uh, you can find me at uh, T Baskin on the Twitters. I have a website too, uh, timothybaskin.com, and you can find a lot of my info there too. Post stories and stuff occasionally as well, so if you're interested in that kind of thing. And then as far as uh, us here at Failure Peace Theater, you can get a hold of us at fpeacetheater on Twitter or failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, so, as you mentioned, you're uh, working with Void Point Games now, doing some work for them, so people can definitely check out their stuff if they are interested in awesome retro games. Uh, and uh, I'm fumbling around on the internet, trying to get some stuff published, so I'll be uh, around in that way too. So, uh, thanks for listening again, everybody. Uh, we appreciate you uh, coming in, checking out what we had to say about Tron Legacy. We certainly encourage you to go and check it out. It is absolutely an underappreciated gem. Uh, Remember, this story show is not necessarily about those, but this one definitely is one of those. We fight for the user. <laughs> That's right. We fight for the users. We fight for you. At the end of the day. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate uh, letting us into your ear holes again, but uh, we'll see you next time. Have a good one.